Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy. The 2021 fantasy football season has arrived. Let's talk drafts. He dropped the ball! Oh, he dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What do talk about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Playoffs? <laughs> I just hope we can win a game. It's my quarterback. What the hell's going on out here? I cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boys. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. Hardly. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. We are in the heart of fantasy football draft season. And I know this because in the last week or two, I've been getting messages, text messages, direct messages from my loyal fantasy law guy followers, fan base, all nine of them, asking where the podcast, where the draft guide is. It is here. But first, I wanted to thank everybody who has reached out. It really means a lot, and y'all are the reason I make time to publish my work and my research because I do want to help y'all win your fantasy football leagues. And, and now, if you're a past listener, you know that this is my first podcast episode since October, many, many months ago. And a lot of listeners have reached out uh, to ask why. And the reason is pretty simple. I got a job. My wife, Rachel, and I are attorneys in Louisiana, and we worked at a law firm together for three years after graduating. Uh, But last summer, she got a job opportunity that relocated us, and it was actually tough for me to find a job in the height of COVID. I was unemployed for about four to five months. So in the meantime, I started up this podcast and created the Fantasy Law Guy website and brand because it's just something I've always wanted to do, but never really had the time. Uh, So that was awesome. I loved it, but I was doing this while job searching. And 48 episodes into the podcast, about midway through last football season, I accepted a position as an assistant district attorney. Uh, You may not care about that, but that's where my free time went. That's where my podcast went. So obviously, you know, I'd love to get paid for fantasy football content or predicting round one of the NFL draft, my mock drafts, uh, all of which are on fantasylawguy.com. But unfortunately, you know, that is not the case. So sacrifices had to be made and, you know, in the best interest of the family. And speaking of the family, fast forward to August. I'm happy to announce that Rachel and I welcomed our first child into life. It's a beautiful daughter, and and obviously that's been an amazing experience, Uh, but the timing, of course, is suboptimal as it pertains to fantasy football. And my daughter, Catherine Reese Garisco, she's made it uh, pretty difficult to get my fantasy football draft guide out in a timely fashion, and I can attest to all the rumors about the no sleep and the world changing. That is all absolutely true. Uh, But alas, last Friday, I posted my fantasy law guide to the website, fantasylawguide.com. This is my annual fantasy football draft board and strategy guide. And this is why I'm recording this podcast today, bringing back the podcast, at least temporarily. We'll see where it goes. I didn't have enough time to get all of the details I wanted to get into the fantasy law guide because I've been busy changing diapers, warming bottles, and all the other chores, house chores that come with a newborn. So I decided to kind of supplement the draft guide this year with a few podcast episodes, bringing it back. That explains kind of my reasoning arguments 
rankings, stances, everything on my board that you're looking at and you're saying, what the heck is this about? Um, I wanted to get, also give in-depth strategy discussion for each round that can really help explain everything, help guide you through my thought process in each round, help, you, help really kind of walk you through your drafts. So I'm hoping that this insight helps you succeed in your upcoming fantasy drafts. And I hope this intro kind of answers any questions that listeners may have had, like where the podcast went. I felt that I owed an explanation, maybe even an apology for listeners who did follow the show, uh, don't know me personally, and just kind of felt ghosted there. Uh, I didn't intend to leave anyone in the dark, but life does happen. I did have to make some time sacrifices and and whether you're a returning listener or a new listener, I am really appreciative appreciative of you tuning back in. And I'm really excited to record a, a few episodes during my paternity leave uh, to help you all through this fantasy draft season and hopefully take the first major step towards winning your fantasy football leagues. That's what this is all about. And we will we will see what happens. We'll see what what happens from there. But that is my PSA. On a personal note, let's get started with my thought process for the, fan- the 2021 fantasy football draft season. I thought about the best way to lay things out for everyone, but I think the best approach here is to just start talking from the beginning, round one, and go from there. And my number one player... On my draft board, and you can check that out on fantasylawguide.com. It is called the Fantasy Law Guide. That is my draft board and strategy guide. My number one player is Christian McCaffrey. So if you're lucky enough to get the first pick in your drafts, I think CMC should be the pick. There's not much analysis I'm going to give here. He is kind of a consensus number one overall pick. He's been a top scorer in points per game for about three years now. Uh, He averaged 30.13 points per game in only three games last year. That's actually missing a quarter of garbage time, too, as well, where Mike Davis kind of racked up a lot of catches. So he could could have easily averaged, I don't know, 35 points per game. I know it was a small sample, but we're not relying on that three-game sample as the reason you're picking CMC number one. Uh, Recall 2019, Christian McCaffrey, he outscored the RB2 overall by over eight points per game. Uh, He was a massive advantage. He had a LaDainian Tomlinson-like season that year, and he is really the consensus number one player in pretty much all formats. So I'm not really getting cute for for the first overall pick. Every year I get asked, hey, you know, Nick, if you could pick one pick in your draft, like which selection would you pick? I would pick the first overall pick if I had my choice, and I would take Christian McCaffrey there. It really doesn't matter whether you're in a PPR format or not. Again, I'm not getting too cute with this pick. So number two overall is really where my draft board kind of takes a turn from consensus. And I know you may be looking at the draft board and seeing Ezekiel Elliott, oh my gosh, that is a ridiculous pick. He totally sucked last year. Why in the world would I take Zeke number two overall in my draft. And if you're an experienced fantasy manager, you're wondering how in the heck do you have Ezekiel Elliott over Dalvin Cook? Now keep in mind, this is very close call. It's it's not easy on a draft board to kind of reveal where your tier breaks are. Obviously, there's a tier drop-off after Christian McCaffrey, but I think Zeke and Dalvin Cook is the next tier of running backs, and I'm going to explain why I have Ezekiel Elliott slightly over Dalvin Cook, but here's my argument for uh, being pro-Zeke this season. 
Uh, and keep in mind, I, you know, I, I was down on Zeke going into last year. I had Alvin Kamara over Zeke. So pretty much any situation in drafts last year, I was had a choice between taking like Barkley, Zeke, or Kamara. I always took Kamara and it worked out really well. I did have Zeke in one league and, you know, I was watching his games and this guy just looks like, he looked like dust. I mean, he looked finished, but I have a totally different outlook on him now. Um, last, first of all, last season with Dak Prescott, Zeke wasn't as bad as you may have thought that he was. And he looked a little washed, but he was still producing from a fantasy perspective. Uh, in the first five games, and these are games with Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, he averaged 22.34 points per game. Now, every point per game uh, number that I give in this podcast going forward. This is all full PPR. This is the ESPN standard. It's the most popular league. I don't agree with full PPR uh, just for the record, but that is what I'm giving because that is what most people play. So Ezekiel Elliott, 20, over 22 points per game in full PPR. This was RB4 pace in contextualized game log scoring. Uh, that's taking every, uh, that's just something I do where I take every single player and take out their uh, they're kind of bad sample games where they don't really matter. Games with like a backup quarterback, games with uh, kind of like Zeke had actually, games with like uh, so terrible of weather that they couldn't really even throw the ball. Like why include that in the sample? Games where they left in the second quarter due to injury. I take all those kind of fluky games that don't deserve to be in the points per game uh, sample and I average everybody's actual uh, contextualized scoring is what I call and I make my own points per game rankings uh, based on taking those fluky games out of the sample. And Zeke, obviously, what really matters here is the games with Dak Prescott. And those are the first five games. And with those games, RB4 pace. So RB4 points per game there. Uh, it, it, again, it is uh, it is only five games. So it is a pace there. It's not like 16-game sample. But he was a top five running back with Dak Prescott. That's what you need to know there. So not nearly as bad as his RB21 pace in 15 games if you do his entire season. Obviously, it was even worse with the games with Ben DiNucci, with Andy Dalton. It's going to be closer to RB30 there. But the games that matter are with Dak Prescott here. And he was not nearly as bad. He was a top five running back with Dak Prescott. And this is despite a lot of negative things that really happened to Zeke. First of all, um, he dropped two passes in week three. He had a touchdown called back in week two, a one-yard kind of bunny touchdown. And Dak Prescott also scored three rushing touchdowns in week two, all from short distance. So that's just something unlikely to occur again. Those touchdowns easily could have gone to Zeke. Zeke also, he ran 46 more pass routes than the second highest running back through four weeks, uh, the first four weeks of the season. Dallas was trailing often. Zeke is, you know, he's going to be the bell cow there. He is getting all of the goal line. He's getting, all, he's running a, a, a load of pass routes. And I, I think that he's due positive touchdown regression. He only scored eight touchdowns last season, but he had 12.7 OTDs per Mike Clay's opportunity touchdown metric there. He also did this, but uh, he also performed with an injured offensive line. Um, Tyrone Smith only played two games last season. Uh, their center, Kevon Looney, did not play five games. Right guard, Zach Martin, he missed all pro. He missed eight games. Right tackle, uh, Lyle Collins, 
He did not play the entire season. Zeke, he dealt with a minor calf issue, hamstring issues down the stretch. He looked slow. He fumbled six times. Uh, Even there was talk at the end of the season, Tony Pollard, including myself, thought that he looked more explosive than Zeke. But yet, despite all this, somehow Zeke still managed to finish as a top 12 running back for the fifth consecutive season. And that's what you're getting. That's despite losing Dak Prescott for 11 games, despite everything I just mentioned. Uh, Still a top 12 running back. I think he finishes RB12. A lot of that is, you know, that's in not contextualized scoring. As I mentioned, he was RB21 pace, but top 12 for the finish. And that's because he stays healthy. I mean, he continues to play every game, like pretty much every season. I think he missed one game last year. He just never misses games. And that is the main reason. That's kind of the tiebreaker. The reason I have him um, right ahead of Dalvin Cook is that Dalvin Cook misses games every season. He's one of the most injury-prone or high-risk injury picks in all of fantasy football, and particularly at the running back position. Uh, this, what I'm, I'm optimistic about Zeke this year because he has come into the offseason by all accounts looking lean, cut, quicker. You can see it on Hard Knocks. He's, um, you know, HBO's channel there. He looks skinny. I mean, he's gone from, uh, I mean, he's just got a total, just totally looks ripped now. He can. Girl, look at everybody. Girl, look at everybody. Girl, look at everybody. I work out. Every, by all accounts, the RB coach, Dak, uh, the head coach, Jerry Jones, everybody in Cowboys camp is talking about how Zeke has taken a different approach to this summer. And normally, he waits until training camp to get in shape in the past. And now he spent the offseason doing that. He showed up to training camp, uh, quote unquote, in the best shape of their life. I am buying into, I know that a lot of that's fluff, but you can just watch Hard Knock and see that the guy just looks like a totally different player than when he's looked going into past training camps. I am buying the the uh, best shape of his life talk going into the offseason. I'm also buying the idea that Dak Prescott is coming off a broken fibula and um, a broken leg. And so Dak Prescott is, I don't think he's going to be putting the emphasis on the run that he has. I think Dak, uh, the Cowboys may ease him in a little. And I think if he runs the ball less, particularly at the goal line, I already mentioned one game last season, I think it was against the Falcons where he had three short rushing touchdowns. You're going to look to see Zeke at the goal line even more. Last year, even without Dak Prescott for 11 games, Zeke was top five in uh, carries inside the five. I I don't know. There's just a really, there's a lot to like about Zeke Elliott. There are slight concerns that, you know, he's getting on the the wrong side in terms of uh, volume, in terms of his career. There's there's concern that, you know, maybe he's kind of wearing down and we saw that last season. But I'm taking the bet that Zeke is going to be revitalized this year and have a really strong bounce back season. And I kind of have him even with Dalvin Cook. And again, my tiebreaker is that Zeke stays healthy and Dalvin Cook simply, like, it's a rarity that he does. Um, If you want to take Dalvin Cook number two overall, you certainly can. I won't fault you for it. I won't fault you for deviating away from my board you know, it, you know, a couple spots. If you feel that I'm wrong, just go for it. The board is not meant to be gospel. It's just meant to be uh, a, a draft guide. It's a guide. It's a recommendation. It is not something that you have to, you know, adhere to so strictly. And different leagues 
have different settings. I write this board as PPR, but you know, and there are also different things that happen in your draft that you may have to make adjustments. So you don't have to see this as gospel. If you want to take Dalvin Cook uh, number two because you think he's the safer pick from a points per game perspective and you think he's going to be healthy this year, go for it. But me personally, uh, I am taking Zeke just very slightly over Dalvin Cook. And to be totally honest with you guys, if I had the number two pick in multiple leagues, I'd probably split the shares here. I'd probably get Dalvin Cook in one league and Zeke in another just to kind of um, mix up my exposure here. So this is not a strong stance as Zeke number two. It is a strong stance that I do think, uh, even having Zeke in the top five, I do think he's going to be have a strong bounce back season this year. Uh, Dalvin Cook, number three overall. This guy was a total stud last year. He was able to stay healthy for 14 games. RB2 pace in, in CGS, that is contextualized game log scoring, 24.45 points per game in 13 games. I didn't count one of the games because he left at halftime in CGS. Um, there's really not much. He, was, he became the first running back to open the season with eight straight games with five uh, over five yards to carry. He's extremely efficient. Mike Zimmer, run first team, zone blocking system that uh, that Gary Kubiak installed there in Minnesota. The Kubiaks are gone now, but uh, but his son is taking over offensive coordinator. So this is a great zone blocking s- system and scheme that Dalvin Cook kind of thrives in. We've seen other fantasy football uh, uh, running backs in terms of fantasy football thrive in. This is just a great setup for Dalvin Cook. It is worth noting his splits last year. He kind of got overworked in his first seven games. He averaged 28.7 points per game, RB2 pace, and he averaged 5.9 yards a carry. Uh, however, in his final seven games, 19.5 points per game. That is a nine-point drop-off in points per game. That's pretty substantial. RB6 pace, only 4.16 yards a carry. Look, I know you can't use yards per carry as everything, but I think he did get a little worn down down the stretch last year. Um, I think that the Vikings will use Alexander Madison a little bit more this season, um, but uh, his... In 2019, Cook's 22.63 points per game in 11 games was also RB2 pace. So you have a two-year sample size in this system where Dalvin Cook's been just totally awesome, like a total fantasy freak, as long as he's been healthy. And that's his bugaboo right there. Durability, a major concern for Dalvin Cook, but that is the only concern, really. He misses games every season. Again, that is the reason I have Zeke just just a hair ahead of him, but if you want to take Cook, that's fine. Uh, here's the thing with Zeke and Dalvin Cook. Alexander Madison and Tony Pollard are required handcuffs, uh, handcuffs, excuse me, for both of those players. And I want to stress the importance of getting, of drafting Alexander Madison as a handcuff for Dalvin Cook, especially. This guy's one of the most injury highest injury risk in all of fantasy football. You need to be drafting Alexander Madison as a backup later. I don't know. It's like round nine, round 10. You can be aggressive with it. You want to ensure that top spot. Mike, I mean, that Vikings running game. Mike Boone is gone now. It is really just Alexander Madison. Maybe he'll concede pass downs to Amir Abdullah. We saw that in one game against the Falcons last year, but we saw last week, last year against Detroit Lions in week 17 when Dalvin Cook was out for personal reasons. Alexander Madison came in and scored two or three touchdowns in that game. I think Alexander Madison is one of my favorite zero RB picks. He's one of my favorite insurance picks, and I've been, I've been drafting Madison even if I don't roster Dalvin Cook this year. He's just an amazing lottery ticket to have. And and like I said, Cook misses games every year. You can debate all you want like, oh, are handcuffs worth it in fantasy football? 
I personally fall on the side of, you know, I'm pretty anti-handcuff unless there's a clear cut hand handcuff and unless that the running back is going to be top 15 or top 12, I should say, if the starter goes down. And especially in this case, when you have an injury prone starting running back, I think Madison just makes a lot of sense here. This Vikings running game, like I mentioned, is extremely uh, valuable. And I would be aggressively targeting Alexander Madison, whether I have uh, Dalvin Cook or not. But this is one of the reasons that I rank Ezekiel Elliott and Dalvin Cook so high is because I like that they have a a surefire handcuff. I love it. I think it's awesome that all you have to do is be able to spend a, I don't know, 10th, 11th, 12th, even 13th round pick in like 10 team leagues to acquire this amazing insurance policy. Whereas, I mean, where if Zeke went down, if Dalvin Cook went down, Tony Pollard and Alexander Madison are league winners for other teams and they are safety insurance policy for your teams if you roster Zeke or Dalvin Cook. So, but I think that that makes Zeke and Dalvin Cook more value in fan, more valuable in fantasy football than a guy like Derrick Henry, where if Derrick Henry goes down and you draft him three overall and you don't pick up Alexander Madison, you don't have an insurance policy for Der- Derrick Henry. Even if you draft, uh, my voice cracked there, but even if you draft Darrington Evan- Evans late, like the last round, his backup, we don't really know what Darrington Evans is going to do if Derrick Henry were to miss time. So the fact that, Zeke and Dalvin Cook both have these obvious handcuffs, these obvious insurance policies that can ensure top 15 running back production, even in the event that your prize draft pick gets hurt for the season, that is extremely valuable. And I think that that is just something that's being very understated. If you'll notice in the fantasy law guide, they are the only two handcuffs that I do advise or I do advocate drafting. And I don't even view them as handcuffs. I think Tony Pollard and Alexander Madison are great picks regardless, but we're going to get to that in a future episode when I talk about sleepers, late round pick, what to do there. Right now, we're going to, in this episode, we're going to be focusing on the early round strategy. And let's move to number four overall, my player. This is another surprise. Zeke, like I mentioned, he's the first surprise of the draft guy because his ADP, his average draft position is, I think, sixth overall right now. I think it's creeping up. Maybe he's getting a little hard knocks bump. But Austin Eckler, this is a bigger surprise. And he's the cover boy here because Austin Eckler, I have his RB4, number four overall, and his ADP is 11th overall. He's going into the second round of a lot of drafts. His ADP is also RB8 off the board. Look, I'm going to give my pitch for Austin Eckler. If you don't want to draft him fourth overall, you don't have to. And if you want to pick somebody like Derrick Henry because you think it's safer, or maybe you're in a non-PPR league and Derrick Henry is the smarter pick there, then go for it. But this is for PPR full-point PPR leagues. Austin Eckler is my number four overall player. And yes, if the, I mean, let's be honest. If you're picking number four, you're probably likely to get Zeke if you're following the board and not Eckler. So I don't want you to think that you're entering a draft at four. You're going to get Austin Eckler if you follow my board. You're likely going to end up with Zeke if that's easier to swallow. But Austin Eckler, you're probably going to end up, if you're following my draft board, you're probably going to end up getting him if you pick anywhere between, I don't know, I'll say six to 10 or yeah, because that's probably where he's going to go in most fantasy football leagues, at least if it's PPR. I'll give you the pitch for Eckler right now. Again, he is the poster child of the fantasy law guy this year. Um, 
Last year, 21.88 points per game in seven games last year with Justin Herbert. I excluded week one against uh, from that sample because that's Tyrod Taylor at quarterback. It means absolutely nothing. Um, and I, ex- I excluded a week four early ex- uh, exit where he did hurt his quad. He came back from a very, very serious thigh or quad injury and Eckler's season was kind of crippled with that injury. He, in fact, he played through a questionable tag. He played through a pitch count on two games. He wasn't 100% for his final three games. Coming back from the quad injury where he missed, I think it was like something like, uh, I, I forgot exactly how many games he missed, but I don't have it in front of me, but it's, I think he missed six, seven, maybe eight games with it was a very serious injury. It was thought at some point in the season that he might not return, but he did. He just wasn't 100%. When he came back in week 12, he missed out on a receiving touchdown. He was stopped inches short. I like to note stuff like that in the fantasy law guide just because it kind of kind of show you the missed opportunities of how this guy could have scored more or fewer fantasy points per game and how it kind of sways the points per game metric there. Um, he scored with Justin Herbert prior to the injury, and I do think this is relevant even though it's only two games. He scored 50.1 points in two games total against Kansas City, against Carolina in those two games before the quad injury with Justin Herbert. That's weeks two and three before he got hurt against Tampa Bay. He also averaged, uh, so that's averaging 25 points per game. Obviously, that would be um, that would be RB2 behind Christian McCaffrey. He also scored or uh, he averaged 26.75 points per game in four games without Melvin Gordon in 2019. And that's RB2 pace in 2019. Um, the Chargers, so basically the point is that this guy is a total PPR points per game stud in the last two years, even though the sample size has been limited. Um, the Chargers, offensive coordinator, a new one there, Joe Lombardi, they got rid of Anthony Lynn. Uh, Joe Lombardi's a former Saints quarterback coach. He's compared Austin Eckler to Alvin Kamara. He's been compared to Reggie Bush, Darren Sproles. The Saints have used their running backs in the passing game more than any other team. Austin Eckler also is just an extremely underrated player. He has shown elite efficiency in several important metrics over the last three seasons. There is, I mean, really all indications this offseason are that the Chargers plan on expanding this guy's role and that he's going to be the focal point really of the offense. The Chargers are putting him in bubble wrap. They're not even playing him during the preseason. Eckler last year, the one kind of flaw in the concern that I'm worried about, and every player has their concerns, Eckler was not really trusted at the goal line by the previous coaching staff. Um, it's possible the new regime may differ there and may use him at the goal line. The, uh, the Saints use Alvin Kamara at the goal line, so I don't really see why not. But it is worth noting that the Chargers, it's possible that they use kind of a running back by committee of sorts behind Eckler at the goal line. But again, this isn't really about touchdowns. He's going to find the end zone. Even if it's through receptions, he's going to score at least six touchdowns this season. I'm not worried about that. What's going to get you all your points is receptions. And Austin Eckler is, I mean, he's a sleeper to have over 100 catches this year. Uh, Even if that sounds a little bold, I think that Austin Eckler is a good bet as long as he's healthy to finish second behind Christian McCaffrey in total catches this year. Um, He's going to make up for that lack of rushing touchdowns in PPR format via uh, receptions. And Justin Herbert looked to him a lot in their limited time last year. And again, all of that, uh, all of those numbers, those 20, uh, 21.88 21.88 points per game last year, which was again RB5 pace, 
uh, for Austin Eckler. Again, that was even including several games after he came back where he was on a pitch count, not 100%. So I think Austin Eckler, you know, top five running back in pace with Justin Herbert last year. So it's not that crazy to rank him top five from that perspective in points per game. Um, And again, we've seen it without Melvin Gordon the year before. And this offense is going to be, it's just on the rise. It's an offense that is going to only really going to get better. And I think Austin Eckler is going to be the focal point in the center of that situation. So I like Austin Eckler as my RB4 and points um, PPR formats. If you're in non-PPR formats, I can kind of see kind of dropping him maybe to like 7th, 8th overall. But I, I think in any format, Austin Eckler is a surefire first-round pick. And I think it's crazy when he gets to the second round, which I've seen in several drafts. Devontae Adams is my next player ranked, and he's my first receiver ranked. I have him at five overall. And again, this is mainly for PPR, full-point PPR formats. That is the default when I'm making my rankings. I don't think I would take Devontae Adams fifth overall in a non-PPR format. However, I have him at five overall here, and there's some debate in the industry right now who should be the number one receiver. Devontae Adams obviously slid in ADP when it was when the future of Aaron Rodgers was uncertain. But Aaron Rodgers says that he's going to play for the Packers at least for one more season. They're going to run it back, last dance style. Devontae Adams is obviously going to be a beneficiary there. I The reason that I have Devontae Adams a couple of spots ahead of the next highest rated receiver, which is Tyreek Hill, is because Devontae Adams, I, I think people don't realize how dominant he really was last year and how much separated he was from the number two receiver, which is Hill. Like, think about how good Tyreek Hill was in fantasy football last season. Think about how great of a season he had. It would probably surprise you to learn that Devontae Adams had averaged over four points per game more than Tyreek Hill in contextualized game uh, in my contextualized game log scoring. So in, he averaged... 26.34 points per game in 15 games last year. I excluded week two uh, thir- where he had a third quarter exit, I think with a hamstring injury from that sample. He, uh, But I included the two playoff games because, of course, why would you not want to increase the sample size and include playoff games in my contextualized uh, game log scoring? That's why I think it's uh, – that's one reason why I think it's better than regular PPR um, evaluations there. But Devontae Adams, just total target hog in a magical season with his MVP quarterback. Uh, They're running it back this year. There's not really a lot that's changed in this offense. They did trade for Randall Cobb. Uh, Surprisingly, Aaron Rodgers really wanted him, but he's kind of on the back end of his career. There's been glowing reports of Marcus Valdez scantling. But again, this is the Devontae Adams show in the passing game. Uh, He is due some, some touchdown regression. He scored 18 touchdowns last year on only nine 0.7 0.7 opportunity touchdowns, according to Mike Clay. But Tyreek Hills also do some massive touchdown regression as well. So I don't really hold that against Adams in terms of comparing him to Tyreek Hill or the other receivers. Um, basically, I just love that Devontae Adams is tied with Aaron Rodgers, uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And I also just love that this wasn't just one great season from Devontae Adams. This actually started late uh, the second half of 2009 
uh, where Devontae Adams really started going on a tear. He averaged 25.4 points per game in the final five games of 2019, and he was able to parlay that into an, an amazing season. Again, I, I rank him fifth overall because 26 over 26 points per game in 15 games for Devontae Adams, whereas Tyreek Hill, the number two receiver in fantasy football, 21.5 points per game. So Devontae Adams, four points per game better than Tyreek Hill. And that is that is substantial. That is a big deal in fantasy football. So I don't think there's any way that, I mean, you can make an argument that Tyreek Hill should be above Devontae Adams. But again, that was the closing argument for me. It's just really tough for me to do that. Um, number six overall is Derek Henry on my uh, fantasy law guide on my draft board right there. He is RB5 for me. Again, he is the perfect example of how your league format makes a big deal. Even in half PPR leagues or non-PPR leagues, Derrick Henry is going to be a lot higher. In fact, he's going to be probably a top three player. I might have him over Zeke. I might have him over, uh, probably not over Dalvin Cook. In non-PPR, I'd probably go Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook, then Derrick Henry, then Zeke. Um, and Austin Eckler would be a little later obviously, for reasons that we spoke about already. But Derrick Henry's value is going to be substantially increased in non-PPR formats. And the reason is pretty clear. If you haven't gathered that already, he just doesn't catch a lot of passes. And and it's a dang shame, but it's just, it's not that he can't do it. He does drop a lot of screen passes, but it's mainly because that the Titans don't really give him the chance. Like we are asking over and over again every season annually, like fantasy managers and experts just want the Titans just to give him a few screen passes uh, a week. And that would really, but if he could even get like 35 receptions, that's less than two per game, then like that would substantially increase his value in, in PPR leagues for sure, but he doesn't. So, but that doesn't mean he's not valuable. He's still definitely a top 10 player overall. Uh, Derrick Henry, he's been just a total fantasy freak of nature in the last two seasons. Uh, last year, 20.1 points per game in 17 games. That included the playoff game, RB6 pace. Last year, I have him sixth overall. He also scored 22.5 points per game, even more, in 12 games with Ryan Tannehill, which is RB2 pace in 2019. So we are talking about a, I believe it's a 26-game sample here where Derrick Henry has put up top five RB numbers. So a lot of experts don't think that Derrick Henry really gives you league winning potential because he doesn't catch passes, but I think that's kind of baloney. And even if he doesn't give you like, oh, he's never going to put up RB1, like he's never going to be the RB1 because he doesn't catch passes. Even if that is true, that doesn't mean he's a bad fantasy selection. I mean, you're picking Derrick Henry fifth, sixth overall, and guys like Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook are already gone. So Derrick Henry, I think he's a perfectly safe selection. He's the identity of the offense. It is worth noting last year that a lot of production came from soft opponents, and that kind of carried the day. I tallied 202 fantasy points out of his 341 fantasy points came against the Minnesota Vikings, Houston Texans twice, Indianapolis Colts without DeForest Buckner playing, where they just ran all over him, the Jacksonville Jaguars and Detroit Lions. Those are some really, really soft defenses last year. But Henry is no stranger to eruption games, and he also gets to play three of those teams twice a year, being in the AFC South. He was pro football focused as number one running back. There's just a lot of reasons to, to stay in tune with Derrick Henry being a top five uh, player, especially in non-PPR formats. Of course, we're concerned about his workload, but I don't think Derrick Henry is any more likely 
likely to sustain an injury more than any of the other running backs that are going in the first round or really at all of fantasy football because Derrick Henry, look, I get it. He's touched the ball over like 400 times in the last two seasons, but he's always been a running back that's defied the odds. He's also just a total beast. And people said that about Derrick Henry's workload last year, and he ended up being a great pick again in 2020. So there's just really, and he's also just been a pinnacle of health since he's been into the league. I mean, how many games has he missed? Like maybe one? I don't have that in front of me right now, but Derrick Henry, like Ezekiel Elliott, I mean, he just doesn't miss games. So there's no reason to, I mean, there's a reason to be fearful that, you know, maybe the workload is catching up to him and he could wear down, but there's no reason to make like aggressive decisions based on that fear. Uh, I certainly am not. Derrick Henry, I have him as a top five player in any half point or non-point PPR league, but I have him at sixth overall in PPR leagues. I do want to favor running backs over wide receivers, and it's possible that like I would move him over Devontae Adams depending on my league, but it's, it's pretty tight there. Uh, my next available player is actually I shouldn't mention about Devontae Adams. I didn't mention any concerns for Adams, and I want to be fair and give both positives and negatives. It reminded me of Derrick Henry when I said a lot of his production came from soft opponents. I want to note that Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers also had a very soft schedule last year. A lot of Devontae Adams' best games did come like against the Houston Texans, like the Niners with with just the Minnesota Vikings where they were just struggling at corner last year and the Detroit Lions, there was just, there was just a lot of games that Devonte Adams played where it's like, you knew he was going to blow up because the teams that he played against in terms of the secondary were really shorthanded. So that is worth noting that the schedule may be a little tougher for Devonte Adams, and Derrick Henry, but I still love them this year. I think that if you're following the guide, you're probably more likely to end up with Austin Eckler, maybe Zeke, than Derrick Henry or Devontae Adams. But if you're like pick nine and, and Derrick Henry's off the board, Zeke's off the board, maybe even Eckler's off the board, Devontae Adams, a perfectly great selection in PPR formats. Let's move on to Alvin Kamara. Now, Alvin Kamara, really so far I've said guys that have I've ranked either above ADP or at ADP. I haven't gotten to anybody who I've ranked lower than ADP really yet. Uh and the first one here is Alvin Kamara. And Kamara, obviously, I loved him last season. He was on a, he was on a, a lot of my teams. Uh, I ranked him higher than consensus. I knew he was going to have positive touchdown regression. He was just one of my big hits last year. This year, I'm a little lower on Kamara. Obviously, I think the regression is going to happen even if Drew Brees was coming back because Kamara just scored touchdowns at a very, very high rate last year, and he just had a career year. So naturally, I think, you know, let's regress back to the mean there. However, there are more reasons to be concerned as well, just because Drew Brees obviously retired. Last year, 24.17 points per game in 17 games. Uh, one did not, uh, one DNP, but two playoff games. That was RB3 pace for Kamara behind Christian McCaffrey, behind Dalvin Cook. But Kamara was RB2 pace and 27 points a game in 13 games with Drew Brees. Um, contrast that with only 14 points per game compared to 27 points a game um, and RB22 pace compared to RB2 pace in the four games with Taysom Hill at quarterback compared to the other games with Drew Brees. That is a big deal. That is a huge split. When you were talking about being the RB2 pace in 27 points per game with Drew Brees compared to, again, 14 points per game in RB22 pace with Taysom Hill, 
and now his ADP is seventh overall, that is a big, that is a substantial. Now, the only reason I actually don't have Kamara ranked lower is because Michael Thomas got hurt. And you can look at Kamara's splits from last year, which of course I did. Kamara actually averaged 18 points a game RB7 pace in nine games with Michael Thomas, as opposed to over 30.8 points per game in games where Michael Thomas didn't play. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of those were with Drew Brees. So that kind of alters the sample size. Another thing that, I mean, that kind of alters the sample there. Another thing that kind of weighs heavily on that sample is that six touchdown game against Minnesota on Christmas Eve, which won a lot of people their fantasy championships. But Sean Payton could heavily lean on Alvin Kamara without Michael Thomas. He could be really the center and focal point of the offense. Now, I think that Saints fans or, or fantasy managers who draft Alvin Kamara are going to want Jameis Winston to be the starter there. I don't think Alvin Kamara really meshes well with Taysom Hill at quarterback. I mean, we've already saw, seen it in the splits. He was RB22 in four games with Taysom Hill, and that was against soft opponents too. It was Atlanta twice, it was Philly once, and it was Denver without their quarterbacks. So I think that Jameis Winston has more touch on his passes. He's going to have better timing on the screen passes. You want Jameis Winston being the starter. In fact, I might rank Alvin Kamara ahead of Derrick Henry in PPR formats if Winston is is named the starter. I do think that Winston will be the starter, but I also think that both quarterbacks for the Saints will start games, and that kind of worries me. It's also not just about Drew Brees locking on and being such a and locking on to Kamara and just being so accurate with his dump off passes. And Drew Brees was just so great at reading his progressions and always just knew exactly where Kamara was on the field and exactly where to hit him in stride. It's not just about that. It's also that Drew Brees put the Saints in the red zone more often. There's more scoring opportunities for Kamara when Drew Brees was playing. The Saints offense without Michael Thomas, with Jameis Winston or with Taysom Hill is not going to be as good. So you're just not going to have the scoring opportunities. So that's something that also worries me with Kamara, even if he is uh, the centerpiece of the offense. Another thing that kind of concerns me is that Sean Payton has never been the type of coach that gave Kamara 20 runs a game or gave Kamara 30 touches the game. We know that Kamara is good enough to do that, but Sean Payton's always kind of given him more like 18 to 20 touches a game. And then, you know, seven of those will be receptions or, or something like that. But I, I'm confident Sean Payton will find him, you know, creative ways to get him the ball because it's such a great offensive schemer. But I'm worried that Kamara really doesn't have the upside that he did last season with Drew Brees at quarterback. Uh, and I'm also worried that the floor with like Taysom Hill at quarterback, for example, we saw it in four games last year, is lower than maybe fantasy experts or fantasy managers want to uh, believe or want to admit. So that is why Kamara, whose ADP is three overall, I in RB3 consensus, I have him going at seven or he's seventh overall on my board. So if you're following my draft guide, you're not going to really be in position to be drafting Alvin Kamara this year. And it pains me as a Saints fan, but you know, it is what it is. Um, Nick Chubb is somebody that you might be in position to draft because he is ahead of ADP on my board. I have him as RB7. His ADP is RB uh, is RB9, but his ADP overall is 12th overall. I have him at eighth overall. Now, Nick Chubb is getting a lot of flack from the experts. I wouldn't say flack, but I'd say a big debate in the industry right now is that a lot of experts think that Nick Chubb is not nearly as valuable in PPR formats 
uh, which is most formats, because he simply doesn't catch passes. He's similar to Derrick Henry without the extreme usage that Derrick Henry gets because, of course, the Browns have Kareem Hunt on the roster, um, and the Browns like to kind of spread the wealth there. Now, Nick Chubb is just as talented as Derrick Henry, and they, they're similar styles. Bruising runners, they don't catch passes. Um, you kind of know, run-first offenses, you kind of know what you're getting out of them. But this concept that experts are kind of honing in on, which I think is a little misguided or just doesn't tell the whole story, is that Nick Chubb is not a league winner. Like, they are convinced, and they are ranking Nick Chubb so low this year that because they are convinced that Nick Chubb isn't going to help you win your league because he's just not going to catch passes and the upside's not there. But I think it's a little misguided. I think it's a little overblown of an approach. And I also think it's just a flawed approach because it doesn't, it, it assumes one thing. It assumes a fallacy, which is that Every other player in round one or round two where Nick Chubb is going is going to hit, is going to be a success. And that's just simply not true. Now, if all the players were hits and they all played to their projection and they all had good seasons, every player in round one and two, yes, Nick Chubb probably would be on the lower end of that spectrum because he'd probably finish at like RB12 or something. And is he worth a first round pick? I don't know. Probably not. But it just doesn't happen that way in reality. In reality, what really happens is a lot of these players get hurt. Some of them bust. Some of them just, it just doesn't go as well as you think it's going to go. In fact, you know, studies have shown 25% to 40% of players drafted in round one and two are going to underwhelm, whether it's injury, whether it's being a bust, you name it. And the reason that I love Nick Chubb a lot more than the rankings do, a lot more than the experts do, that's for sure, is because I don't think Nick Chubb is going to be one of those busts. I think that the chances that Nick Chubb flops are extremely, extremely small. We saw Nick Chubb miss four games last year, and the guy still finished as a top 12 running back in fantasy football. He still wasn't a bust, yet he missed four games. Here's the thing. Last year, 18.24 points per game in PPR leagues in 13 games. That was RB7 pace. He was RB7 last year. It's not crazy to rank him at RB7. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm ranking at RB7, but yet experts would tell you, oh, Nick Chubb's not a first-round pick in PPR leagues. I don't know. He seems pretty safe to me. Let's think about it logically. First, he's one of the best pure runners in the league, so you know he's going to get touches. Second, the Browns are a really, really good team, so... They're projected to be one of the best teams in the AFC. So you know it's going to be positive game scripts, which is essential for a running back that doesn't catch passes. Third, it's one of the best offensive lines in football. So you have one of the best running backs in football or best runners in football with one of the best offensive lines in football, if not the best, and an objectively great run-based coaching staff. Kevin Stefanski, Bill Callahan, some of the best running minds in the NFL. This is the Browns is one of the best running systems in the L. Uh, in the NFL. So great running system, great offensive line, great running back. And on a, on a, a winning team, like a playoff team, honestly, I just, there's just not a lot that can really go wrong for Nick Chubb outside of injury to like Baker Mayfield or Chubb. I mean, he's very, I mean, of course an injury can happen to everybody, but other than injury, he's very bus proof. Could he end up as RB 10 and maybe he wasn't the optimal first round selection? Sure. 
But Nick Chubb is very likely not going to lose you your fantasy football league in round one. And while other players do miss, you know, you're going to have a steady running back in Nick Chubb. And I think that that is a huge positive. And I think that a lot of the experts who are saying, oh, he's not a league winning pick because he doesn't catch passes. So his ceiling's lower than some of the other running backs. I just think it's a little short-sighted of an argument because all these other running backs also come with, I think, a lot more risk than Nick Chubb. So Nick Chubb, lower ceiling than a lot of running backs drafted around him, but definitely, I think, a higher floor. So I like Nick Chubb. I like playing it safe in rounds one and two. I think it's about building a foundation in the early rounds. Like Matthew Barry always says, you can't, I mean, sorry, you can't win your league in the first two rounds of the draft, but you can lose it. And I don't think Nick Chubb is going to lose it for you, you know, obviously outside of some injury. And again, he got hurt last year and he still didn't lose it for you. Um, The other thing that I like about Nick Chubb that nobody's talking about, and this is the last point I'll make about Chubb, is that uh, sorry, I spent a, long, a longer time on the players that I differ from the experts on because I feel like I have to argue my point. Um, so I don't know if that, that's favorable or not for the listeners, but maybe it is. But the other thing I like about Nick Chubb is I don't think the experts are putting enough emphasis on how infrequently Kareem Hunt was used down the stretch. They're, they're talking Hunt like he's going to be this big burden to Nick Chubb. And while that is true, I would rather him be like Derrick Henry where you have this um, this really, really high usage back and no matter what the situation is, but the Browns do like to give Kareem Hunt some relief touches and they like to split carry sometimes. However, Kareem Hunt was used less frequently down the stretch in games in the, in the final six games last year, weeks 14 through 19, including the two playoff games that the Browns played win and playoff games are important, including the sample, because that's what the team is like that is when they're trying their hardest. So we're seeing their true intentions there um, in the playoffs. So he averages nine touches per game in the final six games. Kareem Hunt did. So I think, you know, Nick Chubb got a little more pass usage down the stretch too in that span. So if that's a sign of things to come, I think maybe Nick Chubb could be, he's never going to be a plus in the passing game. Don't get me wrong, but maybe he'll be a little better, a little tick higher than experts may be projecting. And, Lastly, I just wanted to mention that Nick Chubb, like Derrick Henry, if you're in a non-PPR format or a half-point PPR format, I think Nick Chubb is probably a top five or top six player uh, in fantasy football. Yes, I would draft him over Eckler in non-PPR, over Kamara for sure, over Devontae Adams for sure. So moving on to Travis Kelsey, uh, tight end. So somewhat controversial here, but the experts actually... His ADP is 13th overall. Travis Kelsey's actually ranked fourth overall on ESPN rankings right now, which may come as a surprise to those who haven't looked at the ESPN rankings yet and who are just getting back into fantasy football if you're a casual drafter. Fourth overall, that seems extreme for a tight end, and I think a lot of casual drafters would have no chance of picking Travis Kelsey at fourth overall. In the leagues that I've been in, some of the home leagues, I've already done um, four home drafts um, of varying levels of competitiveness. Travis Kelsey has not really gone anywhere close to fourth overall in any of those leagues. Typically in the competitive leagues, I'm seeing him go around where I've ranked him, which is ninth overall. His ADP on Fantasy Pros and even like if you combine ESPN and Yahoo, which I did for the ADPs in my Fantasy Law Guide, his ADP is usually around uh, 13 overall. In one of my drafts, I saw him slide all the way to 18th overall, but that was kind of an aberration. Point is that nobody really likes to take tight ends really that high. They like to develop a 
uh, running backs and receivers. Um, but Travis Kelsey was that dominant last year to where I do think he's worth a first-round selection. I have a first-round grade on him. He's ninth overall for me, 22 points per game in 18 games last year. He had one DNP, but three playoff games. And what I love about Travis Kelsey, other than the fact that he's been the number one tight end for five straight seasons, which is amazing consistency. And I don't even need to talk about how remarkable that is. I also don't need to talk about that Patrick Mahomes is his quarterback. So that's an obvious plus. But what I love about Travis Kelsey is that is that he finished so strongly a lot of people who don't realize how incredible he was down the stretch last year. In the first seven games, he averaged 16.87 points per game. That's tight end three pace. He wasn't even the number one tight end in the first seven games. However, in the final 11 games, including playoffs, 25.42 points per game. Not only is that tight end one pace, and not only was a 16 pace for his final 11 games was 187 targets, 139 catches, 1,845 yards, and 13 touchdowns. But not only that, that is his 25 points per game in the final uh, 11 games, big sample size, was second only to Devontae Adams in contextualized game log scoring last year. And it was over four points more no, sorry, about four points more than his teammate, wide receiver Tyreek Hill. So let's think about this real quick. You have Travis Kelsey in the final 11 games putting up 25 points per game in PPR leagues, and that is four points more than the number two receiver. And that is why I think he's worth a first-round selection, and I have him over Tyreek Hill, because how can you justify having Tyreek Hill, which I have, I'll kind of carry over to him right now, because he's my 10th overall player, wide receiver two, and his ADP is about him, so I have him ranked right near consensus, but my main argument for having Kelsey over Hill is how can you possibly have somebody who averaged more points per game than Tyreek Hill did last season in contextualized game-long scoring, more points per game than Tyreek Hill, and four points more per game in the final 11 games than Tyreek Hill. How can you have Hill over Travis Kelsey when the tight end position is so much more scarce than the wide receiver position? Like you're getting such a massive week-to-week advantage by having uh, an elite tight end like Kelsey or like Darren Waller, maybe Kittle. I I think that it just seems obvious uh, maybe not obvious. I'm not to say that this isn't to say that, of course, Travis Kelsey's going to end up as more valuable than Tyreek Hill. But it just it was really hard for me to rank Tyreek Hill over Kelsey when Kelsey scored more points on, than him and plays at a much more scarce position, a much m- more difficult position to have and gives you a much greater weekly advantage having, a week, uh, having an elite tight end as opposed to receiver. So anyway, my next Highest ranked player is Tyreek Hill at 10. I have him right at about ADP. He is due for massive touchdown regression. He scored 17 touchdowns last year, obviously a career high, and he only had 8.9 OTDs, and that's Mike Clay's opportunity touchdown metric, which is the touchdowns what an average player would have scored uh, from their down distance. But but arguably, I can make the argument just by doing my contextualized game logs that Tyreek Hill actually 
he ha- he left some uh, meat on the bone last year. He left some touchdowns on the field. He had a 75-yard touchdown nullified by a holding penalty in week five, and he also missed two touchdowns in week 13 alone against Denver. One was called back by penalty. Another was caught. A long ball was caught but ruled incomplete, and it wasn't challenged by Kansas City. It was actually should have been a touchdown. But this is a simple, you know, K-I-S-S case. Keep it simple, stupid. This is an electric, one of the game's best receivers attached to one of the game's best quarterbacks. The quarterback, Pat Mahomes, has an amazing arm. This receiver's the best deep threat in the league. It's just a match made in heaven. Uh, I mentioned how I have a tough time ranking Hill over Kelsey, but Hill is is one of the safer uh, bets in fantasy football, and I definitely think he's worth uh, a round one selection. After that, it gets a little more dicey with my next player rated, and that is Jonathan Taylor. Uh, and that is running back for the Colts. I have him number 11th overall. His ADP is 12th overall, and that has fallen from, and the reason it has dropped is because of the Carson Wentz injury. Wentz obviously had a foot injury that we don't really know. He's out indefinitely. We don't really know how long he's going to be out, and that, of course, affects Jonathan Taylor because it means the offense is going to be put in position to score less if they have a weak third, second string quarterback out there. Jacob Eason would be who it is right now, and that's pathetic. Um, so if defenses are stacking the bots against Taylor, that's going to be tough. Taylor also does a lot of catch a lot of passes. So yes, his his draft position should fall a little bit. It should decline because of the lack of Carson Wentz. But right now, it's the reports on Wentz's return are pretty optimistic. He may be ready for week one. I dropped him down a little bit on my draft board before publishing this. However, um, I still have him as a first-round selection. Mainly, it's just a bet on talent, and it's a bet on workload. I realize that people don't think he's going to catch a lot of passes because of the threat of Naeem Hines. However... I think Taylor can catch passes, so I don't think he, it's just because they're automatically going to pull him out. I think they will pull him out on a lot of third downs, but that doesn't mean when they throw on first and second down that Taylor won't be able to catch passes. I think he will. Um, I realize that you can make the argument, and a lot of experts will, that his impressive 92% catch rate and his 39 targets last year, his 300 receiving yards last year, likely Phillip Rivers is doing. Phillip Rivers checked down King, especially towards the end of his career when his arm, arm strength waned. However, um, you know you can expect fewer dump-offs from Carson Wentz, even if he's a quarterback. However, I just think Jonathan Taylor is going to be the Colts' identity. I think he was really just scratching the surface last season. Uh, they had a COVID-shortened offseason as a rookie, so he didn't really get his groove going until the final um, seven games. Of course, we all know about that dominant stretch. He was a league winner last year after really struggling in his first nine games where he was RB30 uh, in his last seven games. 23.15 points per game, RB4 pace in BPR formats, average 5.85 yards per carry on the ground. The one concern I have there, though just one thing worth noting, uh, that kind of gives me a little pause, uh, or maybe thinks that he's not going to be the RB4 this year, is that the opponents during that span were pretty cupcake opponents. They were weak. Green Bay, Houston twice, the Raiders Pittsburgh's nice, but it was after they lost Devin Bush. The Jacksonville Jaguars and the Buffalo Bills in the playoffs. And that one of his huge, one of his biggest games was a Week 17 game against Jacksonville, where they just kind of had given up by that point. So this isn't a takeaway from Jonathan Taylor's really impressive stretch run because. 
you know, not every running back can have an RB4 pace in seven-game sample size, but it's just worth noting right there. It's one minor kind of concern that I have. But anyway, I believe in the talent. I think Jonathan Taylor, a nice pick in fantasy football, even in PPR leagues. But yeah, he might get off to a little bit of a rocky start, uh, depending on the Colts' quarterback situation with Carson Wentz. Obviously, if they're trailing a lot, Taylor's probably a little game script dependent. You don't want them to be trailing. You want Wentz there for him to have more scoring opportunities. Yes, if Jacob Eason is starting at quarterback, it's not going to be a pleasant start for Taylor. But I, I'm ranking him here subject to Wentz's health. I do believe Wentz will be available in the first kind of three-ish weeks of the season. So maybe a rocky start, but for now I have him as a late first-round pick because of the talent, because of the workload. Um, I just believe in JT. Uh, the next, the last player I have in the first round, Stefan Diggs. Uh, Stefan Diggs is, I mean, there's really not a lot to say about him. He's one of the game's most really underrated players, but he kind of had that breakout year last year. He's always been underrated. He's always been like one of the league's best Talents at wide receiver, especially from a route running perspective, probably the best route runner in the league. He reminds a lot of experts of Antonio Brown, but he just wasn't utilized a lot in Minnesota, um, whether they didn't throw deep enough or they just didn't utilize him enough because they were a run first team under Mike Zimmer. He also had to compete with Adam Thielen for targets when they actually did throw, but that none of that was an issue in Buffalo. He was the clear cut receiver. Uh, Buffalo Bills, they threw deep. Often, they threw often in general, one of the past happiest teams in the league. And he was just so, such a huge impact on Josh Allen's development. Stephon Diggs, such a great player. He actually had two touchdowns called back by penalty on the same drive in week three. So there was one touchdown off the board. Uh, averaged 20.95 points per game in 18 games. That is wide receiver three pace. I have him at wide receiver three. And in PPR leagues, I certainly think there's really no reason why he shouldn't be a first round pick. At late at the latest, he should be an early second round pick. I'm thrilled to get him in a second in the second round of any PPR format. Let's move on to the second round. Aaron Jones. This is a little bit of a controversial ranking because a lot of people bumped, a lot of experts bumped Aaron Jones back up to the first round. He previously was late first rounder before Aaron Rodgers' uncertainty happened and the threat of retirement and the trade demand, et cetera, et cetera. He moved back into the first round in terms of ADP recently after Rodgers said he was going to, you know, run it back one more time with the Packers. Aaron Jones is awesome. Like, don't get me wrong. I have been, I was wrong about Aaron Jones last year. Uh, Earlier in the podcast, I bragged about how, you know, I had Alvin Kamara uh, higher than consensus and he was on a lot of my teams as a result. Aaron Jones was on none of my teams last year and I got that wrong. He was a good running back last year. He finished as a top five running back. Uh, despite missing, I think, two games last year. That's a second straight season Aaron Jones has been a top five running back in PPR formats. He averaged 17.66 points per game in 16 games. That's two DNPs, but two playoff games that I include in the sample. It was only RB9 pace, but hey, that's good, okay? I have him as RB9, 
He did have a short touchdown called back in week one, but he remained one of the most efficient running backs in the NFL, 5.2 yards of carries, and he scored 12 touchdowns after scoring 19 touchdowns in 2019. Now, I was lower on Aaron Jones last year because I was expecting touchdown regression. He did score seven fewer touchdowns. However, he was still awesome. So, you know, I missed out on Aaron Jones last year, and I'm, again, ranking him lower than consensus, and it pains me to do it. But now I'm doing it for a different reason. I am worried that the Packers like A.J. Dillon more than the public does, more than the experts do, more than fantasy managers may think. In other words, I'm concerned that this is going to be closer to a 50-50 split in terms of touches than may be believed. A lot of people think there's going to be like a 70-30 split and Aaron Jones can thrive on the catches and the efficiency like he's always done. However, I'm not sold that the Packers are only going to use Aaron Jones in the receiving game. I'm not sold that they think A.J. Dillon can't be a factor there. I know it doesn't, I know it seems odd, but I'm what I'm most concerned about is I'm worried that the number one thing that's been giving Aaron Jones so much value in the last two years, again, the touchdowns, 27 touchdowns in the last two years, I'm worried that they are going to view A.J. Dillon as more of a traditional goal line back. And look, I think Aaron Jones is going to have a good season. That's why I have a second round grade on Aaron Jones this year. That's why I have him ranked 13th overall. I'm not going to put somebody 13th overall in all of fantasy football and an RB9 if I don't think he's going to be have a good season. So it's not that you know I'm hating on Aaron Jones. I just I, I just think I like Aaron AJ Dillon to get more touches than people think. There are schedule concerns. The Packers, you know, kind of beat up on a soft schedule last year. And also offensive line downgrades. They, they're losing their right tackle, Rick Wagner. Their, their center, Corey Lindsey. Uh, their left tackle, uh, David Bakhtiari, the all-pro. He is uh, coming off a torn ACL. He might miss half the season. So a little bit of an offensive line concern. That doesn't affect Aaron Jones that much because I think a lot of his value in the passing game. But to me... You know, when I'm grading players in the first round, I want to know that the usage is like guaranteed, like a lot of usage there. And I just cannot stomach the possibility, albeit slight, that this is a full-blown running back by committee, you know, as early as week one for a round one player, like for a player whose ADP is, you know, ninth overall, eighth overall. So that's why I have him two spots lower at his position than the experts do. I'm just, I'm just a little more concerned about A.J. Dillon. I mean, that, that's, that's the crux of it right there. So moving on to Antonio Gibson, and I have him right after. He's my RB10, 14th overall. And this is another player that I'm looking for in the second round. Um, you're likely not going to get... Um, Aaron Jones, if you're following the draft guy, because he's likely going to go in the first round. However, you will, you definitely could end up with Antonio Gibson if you're following the draft guide, because early in round two, you know, if Jonathan Taylor doesn't make it there, if one of the elite wide receivers or Kelsey doesn't make it there, I well, you'll probably end up with maybe Chubb or Eckler. But if they all don't make it there, then Antonio Gibson, or let's say you even have like pick 17 and he falls there, his ADP is 17th right now. So Antonio Gibson, you definitely have a shot at if you're following the guide. Now, he is a very risky proposition for 
round two. Uh, there's really no mistaking that. I don't like how much risk he per personally, how much risk he carries. I've already gone on a tangent about how I like safe picks in rounds one or two. Uh, however, Antonio Gibson, I think that his role pretty much is solidified and there's, there's a ceiling for a lot more. So he had a really interesting season last year. Remember, he was a rookie coming out of Memphis with very minimal touches. He was kind of used as a gadget player in college, and he went in the third round of the draft. And a lot of people thought he was going to be kind of used as a project, but he went to the right team because Scott Turner, son of Norv, has a long track record of having bell cow running backs and also a long track of uh, long track record of throwing his offenses throwing two running backs. You know, Christian McCaffrey most recently. Norton, uh, Ron Rivera is also there in Washington, and he was also Christian McCaffrey's coach. So there's been a lot of comparisons to Antonio Gibson to Christian McCaffrey because Gibson is able to catch the football. Unfortunately, last year, because what I think of the shortened COVID offseason, they didn't really utilize Gibson in the passing game a lot. That might be because of pass protection concerns. It might be just because the route tree was difficult to grasp for a rookie in a shortened offseason. It might have been just because J.D. McKissick was a better player in that role. However, I think that there's reason to believe that Gibson's role is going to be expanded in the passing game. A lot of the beat writer reports have verified that or confirmed that in the offseason when they're watching the Washington football team in training camp and OTAs. Uh, they, they have spoken about how the Washington football team is using Gibson more in the past game. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Now Gibson's going to have a better quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick, a more aggressive quarterback, which means hopefully a better offense, more scoring position. I think that the Washington football team is still going to be a run first offense. And I like that they project to field a really, really great defense and a weak def defensive division. I love, I don't look into schedule too, too much, but I love Gibson's playoff schedule. It's at Vegas Raiders, Dallas, Philadelphia, Dallas, and Philadelphia. That's weeks 13 through 17 right there. That is just a bunch of cupcake opponents where you could easily see um, Gibson just kind of dominating if he's uh, if he's healthy at that point. He admittedly, again, carries a lot more risk, uh, and he has a greater range of outcomes than I prefer in round two, but I think a top five overall uh, running back is definitely within his range of outcomes. It is within his ceiling, you know, one concern that I have is that, you know, Gibson, he's kind of eased into the season. They use him as a running back by committee at first. But then you look at his five games as a bell cow before the toe injury, weeks 7 through 12, 21.56 points per game. That's RB6 pace, which is great. One issue that I have is a lot of his best games were against really soft opponents, and that's kind of a trend. You want, it's, look, everyone plays soft opponents, and you want your running backs to be beating up on soft opponents, but obviously I'd rather him put up better games against better opponents, of course, but his Great stretch, week 7 through 12, when he was getting the bulk of the work. Dallas twice, including that uh, three-touchdown Thanksgiving game. Detroit, Cincinnati, and the Giants. So, I don't know. That's one concern. The other concern is turf toe was an issue this offseason. And surgery surgery on that turf toe would put him out for the entire season. They, The Washington football team has said that it is no longer an issue and that he's totally healthy. So, I'm not going to hold that against him right now. But it's just something kind of to keep in the back of your mind. Antonio Gibson, I have him higher than ADP. So you could end up with him in on your teams if you're following the guide. Joe Mixon, another one. His ADP is right around Gibson's. I have him 
um, at 18, uh, sorry, his ADP is 18th overall. I have him at 15th overall. He is a player who's, you know, we all know Mixon. I was very high on Mixon last year. He really disappointed. It was a total bust. Um, you know, I, I killed myself for ranking him in, as a first-round pick last year. A lot of people who follow my guide had Joe Mixon on their teams last year, and that was in, including myself, which is unfortunate. Uh, he did get hurt, so we weren't really able to see what was truly going to happen, but I didn't like it when he wasn't hurt. He played six games. He was RB 14 pace, averaging 16.6 points per game, but... 42.1 of the 99.6 points that he scored last year in the six games came against one one team in one week against the lowly Jacksonville Jaguars when he had three touchdowns. So, of course, that was a great week, but you don't want almost half your points coming in six games coming from one terrible opponent. Mixon, he's really pleased that you know, they're hiring the offensive line coach, Frank Pollock, who previously had the same job with the Bengals in 2018. That was Mixon's best season in terms of yards for scrimmage and yards per carry perspective. Um, the Bengals beat writers believe that Mixon will handle the largest workload of his career. Coaches have suggested that as well, and that's because pass down back Gio Bernard is gone. So you have to figure more pass routes and uptick in receptions. Joe Burrow, he's coming off the torn ACL. It was a little more than the ACL injury as well. It was a very serious knee injury. He had other um, issues. It wasn't just a straight torn ACL uh, that had to be resolved. Um, we could see the Bengals maybe kind of lean on the run to maybe preserve Joe Burrow as much as they can. Obviously, Joe Mixon, I wish they would have upgraded the offensive line in the offseason, but they really kind of didn't. Uh, and the tough division, remain, those remain obstacles for Joe Mixon. But this is a bell cow running back in, in an offense where you know, they should be in decent scoring position. He should get more catches without Gio Bernard, which has kind of always held him back from a PPR perspective. And it's a, it's an offense with a quarterback coming off a torn ACL. So I like the idea that they might lean on Mixon more often. And they also, the team also, you know, paid Mixon. He is definitely part of their future. So I like Joe Mixon in drafts this year, but you know you, you can be prepared for disappointment annually. That's why I'm not as aggressive as I was about Joe Mixon last season. So Najee Harris at 16th overall, his ADP is also around 18. So you kind of have a trio of running backs, Antonio Gibson, Harris, and Mixon that are all ADP around 18. I have Harris as RB12. His ADP is RB13. I think that, you know, you know Harris is interesting, obviously because he's a rookie. And a lot of people are talking about how he's a lock for 300 touches. The Steelers are going to use him. They're going to give him all they can handle, just like Le'Veon Bell. I do think it's worth noting that the Steelers kind of made it their primary offseason objective to reestablish the run. They had the worst running game in football last year. Pittsburgh was locked on to Harris throughout the draft process. I follow the draft process closely if you're a new listener. And I, I'm very, very into mock drafts, predicting round one. And so I'm very in tune with league rumors and what teams are likely to do and, and, and that sort of thing. And the interest in, in Najee Harris uh, from Pittsburgh was just extremely well known, like a, a wide consensus thing around leave circles. Uh, I mocked Najee Harris to the Steelers. A lot of people did, and they got that pick right. So my point is that they have kind of narrowed in on Najee Harris for like a long time, like arguably since like February, maybe even January. Um, 
it seems like the team would be disappointed if, or we would be disappointed if Najee Harris isn't a three-down back getting goal line and catches. It's been that way in the pre, two preseason games so far. They've used him as the bell cow. Uh, there's real no real competition for touches. I think Anthony McFarland is the number two running back there. Uh, he's got the size of a bruiser, 6'1", 232. Uh, he's going to get goal line work. He, he, he can catch in the receiving game. Um, it just... Seems like the offense may want to lean on him with Big Ben, you know, his arm kind of declining. Concerns, of course, include a bad offensive line. That got even worse, arguably, over the offseason. And just the inherent risk of drafting an unproven rookie this high. We don't know what his durability is going to be like in the NFL. We don't know if he's even going to be a good NFL talent. You you just never really know with rookies. So I have him in the teens. I, I think I would prefer Mixon. I think I'd prefer Gibson. Actually, I know I'd prefer Gibson, but I think Mixon and Harris are kind of in very, very similar situations where you have teams with, you know, not the best situations, not good offensive lines that want to use those running backs as bell cows with pretty decent quarterbacks. I don't think the I don't think Harris or Mixon should be far apart in really any expert rankings, and I have them back to back because I just don't see a lot of difference in their fantasy outlook for this season. So let's move on to uh, 17th overall, which on my board right now is Calvin Ridley. Calvin Ridley is my wide receiver four. His ADP is wide receiver five, and his ADP is 18. So you might be in position to get Calvin Ridley. Of course, I have him here because in full point PPR leagues, he's going to be more valuable because Ridley is He's definitely a dark horse. I wouldn't even say he's a dark horse. I actually think he's a decent bet to lead the league in catches, lead the league in targets, lead the league in air yards, which don't produce fantasy points, but it usually leads to more opportunity. He led the league in air yards by a wide margin, significant margin last season, and now Julio Jones has departed. So it is within Ridley's range of outcomes that he leads the NFL in targets, like I mentioned, and that usually leads to fantasy success. I think it's within the range of outcomes that Matt Ryan locks onto him, and he gets 12 targets a game, and he's fantasy's number one receiver, like even over Devontae Adams. I could see, like if I saw an expert rankings that ranked Calvin Ridley as wide receiver two, I honestly would not bat an eye. Like that's in his range of outcomes. So why do I have him as 17th overall wide receiver four? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, um, I think that there's a chance. I'm a little worried about the quarterback situation. I think there's a chance that Matt Ryan may be just kind of dust, that he kind of has that year where you're like, okay, well, you know, he's, he's done for. So I'm a little worried about the quarterback situation. But I don't know. It's kind of canceled out because the Falcons have no defense. They have no running game. They play indoors, which should lead to plenty of clean throwing environments in the second half of games. I don't know. I might have to move Ridley up. Sometimes when I talk and I ramble on like this, sometimes I can talk myself into moving a player up. There's just really not a lot of arguments against Calvin Ridley this year. I have seen, uh, I saw a tweet where uh, an expert, an injury expert, kind of revealed that Ridley has actually had a lot of injuries. He hasn't missed a lot of NFL time, but a lot of off-season injuries that kind of make him one of the higher risk in terms of wide receivers. Uh, And that kind of gave me a little bit of pause, uh, especially when you're comparing him to somebody like DeAndre Hopkins, who's my next rated receiver at receiver five. And I kind of have those kind of just, I'm kind of torn between those. Whereas DeAndre Hopkins has played 
111 out of a possible 112 games in his entire career. That's 99% of the games. He just doesn't miss games. Total Iron Man. When you're kind of comparing Calvin Ridley, who, you know, a, a doctor that I trust on Twitter says that he's one of the bigger injury risks based on the injuries that he's had, uh, you know, it's kind of, I, I used to be going back and forth between Hopkins and Ridley like every day, like who should be receiver four, who should be receiver five this day. But lately I've been favoring Ridley, but I just can't get him above. You know, I'm talking myself into him right now, but I just can't really get him above the running backs that I just mentioned because I really want to end up with at least one running back in the first round. And if you end up with like a Travis Kelsey in round one or like a Devontae Adams in round one, I really want drafters to be coming out of round two with a running back. I don't want it to be a scenario where you draft Devontae Adams and then the best available player on my board is Calvin Ridley. So you have to start ride receiver receiver because as great as that is and as bust proof as that seems, it just... That also seems like you're kind of putting yourself behind the eight ball because, you know, running back is tough. I mean, the running backs drop off tremendously after like round three. So it's inarguably round two. So honestly, it's just one of those situations where because I want drafters to end up with at least one running back after the first two rounds, that's why I kind of have the three elite receivers earlier and then some running backs there. I even had Clyde edwards Lair in that in that trio of running backs. Actually, it would have been a foursome of running backs there, but I had to move them down because the injury. We'll talk about that in a second. But Calvin Ridley, DeAndre Hopkins right next to each other, 17th, 18th, just kind of right around ADP. You know, I you can make an argument for Calvin Ridley being even wide receiver two. I don't have a problem with that. But again, it, it's mainly a running back versus wide receiver thing at this point in the draft and based on my board uh, I think you're going to want to at least come out of round one with one running back. So that explains why they are further down. DeAndre Hopkins, same thing applies to him. He was 18.68 points per game in 15 games last year. That's wide receiver eight pace. Um, he was, you know, I, he's missed one game in his career. He's just such a safe selection. He's always been a target hog, always have had a high percentage of targets like a big huge target share they did the Cardinals did bring in some reinforcements in like AJ Green and Rondo Moore but I don't know how much is that really going to do I think this Hopkins this Hopkins this offense runs through DeAndre Hopkins and Kyler Murray so in Kyler Murray just Cliff Kingsbury will feed DeAndre Hopkins a bunch of short quick screen passes that will be just so easy money easy points for PPR formats so I, I like DeAndre Hopkins a lot at ADP I think that he's just one of the safest selections you can have. If you're a risk-averse fantasy manager, DeAndre Hopkins in the late second round is the pick for you. And, and Calvin, really, I should have mentioned his splits with and without Julio Jones. A lot of experts are talking about, or a lot of even fans are saying, oh, now there's no Julio Jones, so Ridley's going to dominate. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's true. I wanted to mention this. In my contextualized game log scoring, I wanted to note that his Five full games with Julio Jones, where Julio Jones actually started and finished the game week one and two, six and seven, and week 13. Uh, in five full games with Julio Jones, Calvin really actually averaged 23.68 points per game at wide receiver two pace. And the eight ga- full games without Julio Jones, that's weeks four and five, 12 and 14 through 17, he actually averaged 17.73 fantasy points per game. That's wide receiver 11 pace. So in my point is that in games with Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley was actually better producing more points per game where in games where Julio Jones played the full game than without 
Julio Jones. So any splits that you see from experts, which there are a lot that are suggesting that Julio, that Calvin Ridley's definitely going to be better because Julio Jones is gone. I wouldn't necessarily buy that so much. I, I think, I think overall it's a wash. Of course, he's going to get more targets, but he's also going to get more defensive attention as well. Who else are they really going to cover? I mean, maybe Cal Pitts, but I mean, he's a rookie. So anyway, that's one little ding on Calvin. I wouldn't even call it a ding. I would call it a cancellation. And it's just something to monitor because a lot of experts are, you know, that's one reason a lot of fans and experts are really, really high on Calvin really. And it just gives me a little bit of pause there. I don't know if that's necessarily something that's going to make him better. So moving on to 19, my 19th overall player, and this is probably the, no, this is the most controversial take in all of the early rounds of my draft guide. Arguably the entire fantasy law guide is Saquon Barkley. I have ranked at RB13 when his ADP is RB5, ADP is overall is 6. I have him at 19th overall. Now, Bark, this Barkley's ADP has actually increased in the last couple of weeks. It was 3 overall at RB3. He was the consensus third pick a couple of weeks ago. But now people are starting to, or reports are starting to come out that, you know, maybe he might not be ready for week one. Now, I don't know how believable these reports are, but I don't like to hear them. Right? Like, if you're drafting in fantasy football, why would you want to take a risk? There were reports, Jordan Renan, uh, you know, known beat writer for the Giants, first reported that they, the Giants could limit Barkley snaps early on. Several other comments have, oh, and just keep in mind, I forgot to mention, Barkley tore his ACL in week two of last year. And you may be thinking, oh, well, you know, people tear their ACL all the time. What is that, a nine, 10 month recovery? Well, first of all, I. If you know me, you know that I do not think that it's a 9-10th month. It's a 9-10th month recovery for playing. But to be full strength from an ACL, I usually like avoiding players the first year coming after ACL because usually they're not at full 100% explosiveness until the second year after it. And that's usually when their ADPs are suppressed because they inevitably disappoint in the first year after an ACL. So I don't have any you know, science or studies to back that up. But just in my anecdotal history, I like to avoid players in the first season coming off the ACL and target them in the second season when their ADPs are lower. Barkley's ACL is more concerning because it's not just because he tore it in, eight, in, in week two. That wouldn't be that concerning, theoretically. It's, but it, he had to wait for the MCL to heal. So he didn't have surgery on the ACL until November. That is a lot of people don't realize. November ACL surgery. So it is not a week two surgery. November. Now, that is why Barkley is questionable for the start of the season. Barkley himself has implied that he's going to be ease in. He's, to, he's dodged direct answers to whether he's going to be ready week one. He suggested that he's going to be, you know, he wants to be 110% before he returns. Some of the Giants higher ups have said they're going to take a long-term approach with Barkley. And there's, you know, there's a chance that he'll be ready for week one. The Giants have signed running backs. I mean, they're no good. It's like Devontae Booker, Alfred Morris. I think they already cut Morris. I don't even know. But they've signed a bunch of running backs just either at camp bodies or just to prepare that, you know, Barkley may not be ready for weeks one, two, three. It's possible that Barkley misses the first two games of the season. It's also possible that he plays the first two, but he's eased in. And it's also possible that he's ready to rock and roll and he starts dominating the freak of nature he is in week one. I know Barkley's a freak of nature, but even assuming that he is ready, let's assume that he is ready, which I will not do. I'm not going to assume that he is ready in terms of ranking him 
in my first round. Because why would I want to just make that assumption that a player is healthy? Why would I want to draft any player who's having an offseason like recovery or issue where they've missed the entire offseason and we don't know if they're going to be ready for week one? Of course I don't want to draft any player in the first round like that. That sounds ridiculous. Barkley is no exception. So here's the thing. But even if you can assume that he's going to be ready, 100% ready to rock and roll, Barkley's still being overrated by the industry experts. The fact that he was started to ADP three overall is insanity. It's total insanity. Daniel Jones is just, this offense is led by Daniel Jones at quarterback, who has shown absolutely nothing to warrant any positivity whatsoever, any optimism. And he doesn't dump off to running backs like Eli Manning did when Saquon Barkley had all of those receptions. Saquon Barkley, an amazing receiver out of the backfield. But if your quarterback isn't dumping it off, then you know your receiving projection is going to be overstated. The Giants, they signed Kenny Galladay to use in the red zone. They signed Kyle Rudolph to use in the red zone. They, they have Evan Ingram. They have Darius Slayton. They have Sterling Shepard. Like Daniel Jones, he is also a good runner. So what makes people think that Daniel Jones is going to just dump off passes accurately to Saquon Barkley? I don't know, but I don't think he's going to catch a ton of passes. I know he did in week one against the Steelers last year, but that was against the Steelers. You know, there's nowhere to run. Saquon Barkley was like six for 15. No, sorry. He was like 15 carries for like six yards in that game. They had to use him in the receiving game. And they also didn't have any other receiving options I just mentioned in that game. So I don't know. Even getting off the fact that Daniel Jones is arguably not a good, sorry, not arguably not a good quarterback, is not a good quarterback so far, and doesn't dump off to running backs like Eli Manning did when we've known Barkley to be a great receiver. Even ignoring those two things, this is an offense run by Jason Garrett. It's one of the most conservative, uncreative offenses in the league, and you're you're just tied to an offense with one of the worst offensive lines in the league. So let's put all this together in one big picture argument here. We have a running back who has one of the worst offensive lines in the league. It's total trash. Jason Garrett is a total dumpster fire of a play caller running the offense. Daniel Jones, not a good quarterback. And not only all that, but like all that stuff alone, I probably wouldn't even rank Barkley in the first round, to be honest. I know it sounds crazy. Something against Barkley, but his situation is just terrible. But like, all right, forget the ACL. I'm going off on a tangent here, but let's think about this logically right now, okay? What... Everything I just mentioned, what's the difference with Saquon Barkley and like Najee Harris or Joe Mixon? Joe Mixon's extremely talented, but Joe Mixon plays for a better offense with a better quarterback. You know, maybe he's not the talent Saquon Barkley is, but he is very talented. He can catch better quarterback, better offense, more scoring position. Gio Bernard's gone, like no backup running backs for either of these guys that are threats. And just like, what's the difference? What's the difference? At least at least Joe Mixon has a better quarterback, better offense, better play caller. They both have terrible offensive lines. Like, what is the difference between Mixon and Barkley's evaluation? Honestly, even with a healthy Barkley, I don't know. I don't know who I would say is going to score more points out of Barkley or Mixon, even if Barkley was 100% healthy to start the season. So to me, the idea that he's going in, you know, round one is already a little far-fetched. And when you couple that with the injury risk or the risk that he's going to miss time because of his injury, the risk that he's not going to be 100%, all Saquon Barkley has going for him, all he has going for him is talent because there's nothing to like about a situation other than talent, right? Like there's nothing to like. 
There's no positives other than that Saquon Barkley is a total beast. And that's sometimes good enough. But what happens if he's not fully there in terms of talent? First year coming off the ACL, what if he's not full strength in the talent department? I don't know. That is that is a lot that is a lot of risk for round one. It's certainly absolutely ludicrous, and it always was that experts were ranking him at three overall. I thought that was the most ridiculous and dumb and just moronic ranking that I've seen. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Yeah, and it's going to blow up in my face. You know, people are going to use this as a cold take if Saquon Barkley dominates this year. But fantasy football is about playing odds. It's just so unlikely that's going to happen that it's just a ridiculous ranking to rank him in the top five. And I would argue it's a ridiculous ranking to rank him in the top five, even if he wasn't coming off the ACL. The ACL makes it infinitely more treacherous of a pick. I view Barkley as a second-round selection. Maybe, you know, I I will move him up if there's positive reports coming out. Maybe if I see him, you know, taking hits, and I mean, I don't think he's going to take any hits before the season, but, you know, moving around well in, in some of the cut-ups. But I don't know, man. I think that Saquon Barkley, one of the biggest risk in all of fantasy football, and the fact that he's going in round one is really mind-boggling. It, it, it honestly blows my mind that he's consensus round one pick. In Look, I don't think he's going to be terrible. Obviously, I if I thought he was going to be terrible, I wouldn't rank him 19th. I wouldn't rank him RB13. I mean, that's one away from being an RB1 this season. So I don't think he's going to be terrible. Again, I have a second round grade on him. I just, again, this is just, you know, it's fantasy football. It's about the odds. I don't think he should be anywhere near the first round. So let's move on to a, a player, Justin Jefferson. He's my number 20 overall player. Wide receiver six. His consent, his ADP is wide receiver seven, 22 overall. I have him two spots under ADP. So there's a chance you're going to end up with Justin Jefferson. I see Jefferson going a lot at the turn of drafts. Like if you have picked one, you get Christian McCaffrey. Or if you pick two and you get Dalvin Cook or whatever, and you like the whole, you're in a 12-team league, and round one goes and round two comes back to you in round two. That's usually where Justin Jefferson goes. Sometimes he'll slide to round three and you can get him there. And then I think he's a great pick. He's, I think he's a good pick in round two as well. He was 18.72 points per game in 14 games last season. I excluded weeks one to two uh, from that sample because he was a rotational player there. But that didn't prevent the fact that he was, he had 1,400 yards last year. It was the most yards ever for a rookie um, pass catcher. And in the final eight games, he was actually better than when he started. Final eight games, 19.68 points per game. That was wide receiver five pace. So, you know, broke the rookie receiving yards record I mentioned already. He was PFF's second highest graded receiver. I think he was top five in yards per route run, which is an extremely um, predictive metric to future fantasy success. Um, There are volume concerns in a run-first offense with a projected to be improved defense. But it's also possible that Jefferson's just scratching the surface. I mean, would anyone be surprised if he's a top three receiver this year? No. So yeah, I I like Justin Jefferson a lot. I think he will. He already did overtake Adam Thielen. We saw that at the end of the year. He was already getting the number one coverage from guys like Marshawn Lattimore in the game against the Saints, like Jari Alexander, shutdown corner for the Packers in in the game, the second game against the Packers. Jari was not covering Thielen. He was shadowing Justin Jefferson. So Jefferson's already getting treatment like the number one receiver. I think he's going to get the same from Kirk Cousins. So yeah, I, I think Jefferson is a safe pick. Safe pick is a top 12 receiver. 
And obviously for upside for more, if, you know, again, he was a rookie in a shortened offseason last year. So Justin Jefferson, a lot to like about the former LSU product. I have him at 20 overall, two spots ahead of ADP. Darren Waller, I have six spots, seven spots ahead of ADP. His ADP is 28. I have him at 21. This is the second tight end off the board. He is the second tight end on pretty much everyone's ranking ahead of George Kittle behind Travis Kelsey. Darren Waller is he averaged 17.4 points per game in 16 games last year. I was extremely low on Darren Waller last year. Darren Waller, you know, it's been a roller coaster for me because if you've been following my guide for years, you know that Darren Waller was you know, one of my best calls two years ago. I called the breakout. He was on like almost all my teams. I advocated for like all the listeners to be drafting Darren Waller. He was like my number one sleeper. However, last year, I didn't think he was going to carry that up. And I ranked him way too low. I didn't have a single share of Darren Waller. I had no exposure on any of my teams to Darren Waller. He wasn't really on my draft. You weren't in position to get Darren Waller if you followed my draft guide at all. And that was a huge mistake because Darren Waller was amazing. Uh, Once again, Darren Waller was honestly a league winner, especially the way he finished last season. So in the week that he, the week to week advantage he gave you other than Travis Kelsey at tight end is just, was just so substantial. So what I'm ranking him higher than ADP this year. And it's not just because I'm trying to, you know, recovery bias right there. I'm trying to make up for my stakes. It's mainly because of the way he finished the season, which was, I has me really optimistic final five games. And one of those games was with Marcus Mariota mostly, but 26.46 points per game tied in one pace over Kelsey in the final five games in the final five games, 55 targets, 43 catches, 654 yards, four touchdowns. Um, Darren Waller, he he left a little bit on the field. He dropped a wide open 60-yard touchdown in week 10. I just love the strong finish. I love that he's I love that he meshes well with his quarterback. I mentioned earlier Tyreek Hill, how he just meshes so well with Pat Mahomes because Mahomes has such a beautiful deep ball and such great arm strength, and Hill's such a great deep threat. Well, here it, here, Waller meshes with Derek Carr because Derek Carr throws that seam route so well. He he targets the intermediate and, and short area of the field, and that's where Darren Waller makes his money. I mean, that's where that's where his bread is buttered. So, you know, another reason that I think Darren Waller is so safe because Vegas, they play indoors. They're projected to have, they field one of the league's worst defenses. That will create some clean opportunities for Waller in garbage time. I just think that Waller is a no-brainer second pick. And the only reason you really wouldn't take him there is because you're kind of averse to taking tight ends early. But hey, I mean, if you, I mean, think about this. Travis Kelsey, you know, his ADP is ninth overall. Would you rather Kelsey ninth overall or Darren Waller early in the third? I mean, I think I would prefer that early in the third option. I could end up starting with two running backs or starting with uh, a wide receiver and running back and then getting Darren Waller. And with Kelsey, you're kind of forced your hand. If you go Kelsey in round one, you have to come out of round two with a running back. Like You cannot start Kelsey and then a wide receiver um, at least according to my board, because that's just uh, not a, it's a suboptimal strategy because it puts you behind the eight ball at running back, which is arguably the most important position in fantasy football. So, um, so Darren Waller, he's going in round three in a lot of drown, a lot of drafts, but I even like him. If you think that the teams on the turn are going to take him and you have like pick 21 or something like that, I have no problem with taking Darren Waller in the late second round. So 
Uh, DK Metcalf is my 22nd overall player, and this is rounding out round two. Um, he is wide receiver seven for me. His ADP is wide receiver six, so I'm a little behind market there, but kind of right on uh, a few spots below consensus. His, consensus, his ADP is 19. I have him at 22. I don't want to be lower on DK Metcalf because Metcalf is such a, a total beast. Um, but I'm a little concerned with his finish last season. It's kind of the opposite of Waller. DK Metcalf started the year on scorched earth. Russell Wilson, they were letting Russ cook. His name, his name's Mr. 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 Unlimited. Yeah, you gotta be unlimited. You know, you gotta have a thought process of being unlimited. 20.97 points per game. Wide receiver three pace for DK Metcalf. He was setting the world on fire. But his final nine games, only 14.45 points per game. That's six points per game fewer than his first eight games. And wide receiver 32 pace in, in contextualized game log scoring uh, versus wide receiver three pace in his first eight games um, DK Metcalf attributed this to opponents figuring out the Seahawks offensive formula in 2020, leading to a decline in production in the second half of the season. Look, it's really because the Seahawks stopped letting Russ cook. Russell Wilson kind of went on a, a midseason interception binge. They started establishing the run. So this is kind of really what hurt Metcalf. I'm, there are a few reasons to tread lightly. And I think that Pete, Pete Carroll is one of them. I'm worried that he's going to try to get back to establishing the run. That was really, he fired Brian Schottenheimer. I know Schottenheimer is a run-based coach, but he fired Schottenheimer, at least he alluded to, because they disagreed with how the offense was going to be run. All Pete Carroll has done this offseason is talk about how the Seahawks need to get back to running the ball. He even had some ridiculous quote where he said, we need to run the ball where it's not even working. Like that is... It's a, it's a dinosaur. It's an archaic approach to football, obviously, but it's not something I want for my fantasy team. We know that Russell Wilson and the Seahawks would be better off if they let Russ cook, let him air it out, spread him out, and let Russ do his thing. But I'm just not sure that Pete Carroll has it in him. And I know they brought Shane Waldron over there, offensive coordinator from the Rams, but it concerns me that you know the Rams had such a heavy run rate inside the red zone that I don't know I'm a little concerned that there's going to be some uh some uh, potential you know that DK Metcalf maybe not be scoring 12 touchdowns like a lot of people think he might be so I don't know it's just one of those things where I'm, I'm treading lightly a little bit despite the total freak talent that DK Metcalf is but obviously if he gets to the beginning of round three late in round two I'm totally happy to have DK Metcalf on my team like why not uh same for AJ Brown AJ Brown you know Similar freak of nature to DK Metcalf. You don't want to bet, bet against these types of players um, who just are so physically gifted. Um, DK, what I love about AJ Brown is that who's my wide receiver eight and his ADP is 23. I have him at 23. What I, but I've actually ended up with AJ Brown using my guide, of course, because it's my board. But I've actually ended up with A.J. Brown on two teams that I've drafted already. So I wouldn't say just because I have him at ADP that you're out of position from drafting A.J. Brown. A lot of times you're able to get him in round three because A.J. Brown's going a little overlooked after the Julio Jones trade. Now, what's interesting about A.J. Brown is that before the Julio Jones trade, A.J. Brown was seen as a top five wide receiver outlook in fantasy football prior to that trade. But now I think that the market is kind of overcorrected. And look, I know he's gone down to wide receiver eight, but his ADP has gone from like 12th overall to like 23 overall. And I'm just not totally convinced that 
you know, A.J. Brown's not going to get his. I think he's automatic in round three. The reason that I love A.J. Brown is because he played through extreme knee injuries last year. Last year, 17.85 points per game in 15 games. Two DNPs, but one playoff game. Wide receiver, 10 pace. But he had surgery on both his knees this offseason. And the Titans, I say it like it's a good thing. It was a minor surgery. But the Titans believe that his 2020 season may be done after a week one knee injury. He only missed two games. And he played through the pain the rest of the season. So, I mean, that is really impressive. Like, if A.J. Brown wasn't playing at full strength last year, then I really want to see what full strength A.J. Brown could do. He's like a mini Terrell Owens, like a T.O. Light in terms of playing style. You know, I know Julio Jones got traded to the, um, to the, to the Titans, but the Titans still have a bad defense. I know that they're run-based, but they lost Corey Davis. They lost Johnny Smith, too. So maybe some of the tight ends, I mean, some of the targets, Freudian slip there, some of the targets that go, would go to the tight end may go to A.J. Brown. I don't know. I don't think there's a huge reason to knock A.J. Brown down substantially. He's still such a great player. He's going to get fed. And also, if you are buying that Julio Jones is kind of an injury risk or kind of over the hill because he's 30-something years old, then you're going to want A.J. Brown because if Julio Jones does happen to go go down, A.J. Brown's ceiling is like wide receiver one. Like, that's how good he is. So, yeah, I like A.J. Brown a lot, even though I do have him uh, ranked at consensus. So we're getting to round three, and that's going to be the last round that I cover in this podcast here uh, that I'm recording tonight. Keenan Allen's the first there. 24th overall is where I have him. His ADP is 27, so I'm a little ahead of market on Keenan Allen. The reason I am is solely because of contextualized game log scoring. I was able to find out that because of uh, his week one with Tyrod Taylor week uh, at quarterback, which I excluded from his sample because it's not relevant because Justin Herbert's his quarterback now. Week five and week 15, he had an early exit against the Saints in week five in the first quarter. I think it was after he caught a touchdown. And he also had a week 15 early exit where he was on a, a pitch count from that game, a game time decision, barely played. So when you remove those games from the PPG or the points per game sample, which you definitely should, but other experts would not when they're just formulating points per game, or you know ESPN wouldn't when they're just giving you the scores and you're looking it up yourself, uh, you'll note that in contextualized game log scoring, Keenan Allen was 20.35 points per game in 11 games last year. So that is wide receiver four pace. So the fact that he's wide receiver nine actually is you know, actually had a drop-off from last year. He was a target target monster for the young Justin Herbert who totally locked on to Keenan Allen so much so that last year there was a quote from Anthony Lynn, you can go look it up, where he was telling and calling plays, not telling Justin Herbert not to throw to Keenan Allen and trying to call plays not for Keenan Allen just because he wanted Justin Herbert to, you know, learn to target other receivers and to spread the ball around. Now, is this one of the reasons that Anthony Lynn's probably fired? Yeah, maybe so. Why wouldn't you want to get it to your best player on offense when it's working so well, especially when Austin Eckler wasn't at full strength? But that's neither here nor there. My point is that Herbert and Allen established a great rapport. Look, I realize that 
Keenan Allen's more of a possession receiver, so he he kind of lacks like this huge big play upside. You're not really seeing him go for like 50-yard touchdowns. Look, I get it. Maybe he's not the most fun to watch, but it's fun to watch those points rack up in PPR formats. I'd lower him down in non-PPR formats, but you know, this is just a situation where Keenan Allen's been good for so many years. You kind of know what you're getting. Justin Herbert liked him. I think he's a great round three pick and he's going in round three. So it is what it is. I mean, it's a pretty simple evaluation. I know they're getting Austin Eckler next season. Mike Williams may cut into the targets in the new offense. It is a new offense, but at the end of the day, he's just a good player tied to a good quarterback who showed a lot, uh, showed a great rapport with Allen last year. So he's just, he's pretty conservative, really kind of bust proof. And that's kind of what you want early in the draft. Moving on to Terry McLaurin. Look, McLaurin is is a fascinating prospect because he's just way better in reality than he is in fantasy football. And that's kind of a shame because, of course, we're playing fantasy football. But last year, you know, first 10 games, 16.8 points per game, wide receiver 16 pace. I think that's a better baseline than his actual wide receiver 29 pace for the whole season. And the reason I think that that is a more accurate baseline, that that uh, 16.81 points per game, wide receiver 16 pace, is because that 10 first 10 games, the reason I stopped the sample there, is because that's when he sustained an injury, uh, uh, an ankle injury, that started making him questionable, giving him the questionable tags for games. So clearly he had an ankle injury he was dealing with down the stretch. He wasn't as effective. And I'm presuming that he was healthy enough or healthier in the first 10 games. And that's why the numbers were better. He did not have a high A dot last season. That's average depth of target, even though he is a great deep threat. But I attribute that to playing with bad quarterbacks, right? Like Terry McLaurin, despite being you know, he was wide receiver 16 pace in the first 10 games before injuring his ankle, despite playing with four different bad quarterbacks, Alex Smith for six games, Dwayne Haskins for six games, Kyle Allen for four games, Taylor Heineke for one game. I mean, he was a total mess in Washington. It was, it was musical chairs at quarterback for the Washington football team last year. Now he gets Ryan Fitzpatrick. Now I'm not totally convinced Ryan Fitzpatrick's going to start the entire season. Now get to that, you know, in a, in a future podcast. However, Fitzpatrick is a much more aggressive quarterback. And we see this offseason, Washington uh, signing Curtis Samuel, like signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, doing things and mentioning that they are focusing more on downfield throwing. That is great for Terry McLaurin. There's lots of untapped potential here for McLaurin, considering that he played through two ankle sprains last season and four different quarterbacks. And just because they really didn't use him much as a deep threat, I mean, they couldn't because their quarterbacks would never throw deep, Alex Smith. And then when they did, they weren't accurate, like Dwayne Haskins. So despite this, again, first 10 games, wide receiver 16 pace, and he's just such a better reality player than a fantasy player. And I think, you know, at some point he's going to break out and you're going to want to be ahead of the curve there. So I like Terry McLaurin in round three for sure. I have him right about ADP in terms of the wide receiver at wide receiver 10, but I'm three spots ahead of his, his 28th overall ADP. So hopefully you'll end up with McLaurin on some of your teams. Same for this next guy that I'll talk about here is C.D. Lamb. And CeeDee Lamb, Keenan Allen, and McLaurin are all ranked kind of in the same tier for me. And I haven't been talking a lot about tiers, but like I would say that there's a drop-off 
after DK Metcalf and AJ Brown. And that's why I kind of break the round two grades and the round three grades after those guys is that, you know, if you're new talking about receiver tiers, you know, of course, Stefan Diggs, Tyree Hill, same tier. You could argue that Calvin Ridley's in there. DeAndre Hopkins is in that first tier or maybe the second tier. And then there's kind of like the Justin Jefferson and the, the DK Metcalf, the AJ Brown. Then there's kind of a break there. And then now I have these three guys in the same tier, Keenan Allen, Terry McLaurin, and CD Lamb. CD Lamb, five games with Dak Prescott last year. Those are the only games that matter. 17.2, I mean, 17.12 points per game. That's wide receiver 14 pace, which is great for a rookie. But keep in mind, that's a little skewed because actually it is a lot skewed. I'll be honest, because the Cowboys were trailing in three of those games, like big time where it was just constant garbage time. And I'll talk more about that when I talk about like Dak Prescott and such in future podcasts. But CeeDee Lamb, you know, he's just a popular breakout candidate, clearly an ascending talent, daily highlight reel in training camp. The Cowboys want him to be a star. They drafted him to be a star. Like Jerry Jones loves the guy. He gave him number 88 to wear like Michael Irvin and Des Bryant. He's just, you know, all the stars are aligning, no pun intended for the Cowboys, to for CeeDee Lamb to take the next massive step. He's tied to Dak Prescott, good quarterback. There are a lot of mouths to feed in Dallas, which is the only reason I don't have him ranked higher. But I love, I mean, I think CeeDee Lamb is going to be really fun to watch on your fantasy football team. And I have him ranked kind of in this tier with Keenan Allen, Terry McLaurin, and I am above ADP by five spots on C.D. Lamb, although you better watch out because the ADP is rising. It might get to the point where, you know, you're really not in position to take him. Um, the next player I have 27 overall is Clyde Edwards Elaire. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel Air. Look, this has obviously been updated since I posted the draft, the fantasy law guide on Friday. I've this is the one update that I've had to make. Um, Edwards Elaire went down with an injury on Friday, I think it was Friday night or Saturday night in the preseason game. There, as of now, as of this conversation here or this podcast recording, we are unsure what the severity of the ankle injury is in week um, in the preseason game. I have seen some pretty bad things. I know Andy Reid said it was not a high ankle sprain or it didn't look like a high ankle sprain, which is pretty optimistic, I guess. But I've also seen that it's the inside of the ankle, which is. I think what Michael Thomas had to deal with last year where he missed all those games and still is recovering from it because he delayed surgery. But I don't know. It's believed that it's going to be an ankle sprain, but we'll see if something further is there. I don't like that. I'm recording this on Sunday. I don't like that the Chiefs said that they were going to do an MRI the day after the preseason game, which I think was today or yesterday, and we still have no news. So that seems a little ominous to me. I wouldn't be surprised if Clyde Edwards-Elair is out for the first couple weeks of the season, and I have dropped him down substantially in my rankings to where um, to where you are not in position to draft Clyde Edwards-Elair just because of that risk of injury. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. I don't want you spending one of your high picks on a player who might miss time in the regular season. So to me, it's a necessary move. And really, it's, a, it's, it's an unfortunate move because if before he got hurt, before he did whatever he did to his ankle, you were actually in position to draft Clyde Edwards-Elair based on my draft guide. I had him at running back 
at, in that running back tier with Joe Mixon, with Najee Harris, with Antonio Gibson, and I actually had him right after, sandwiched between Antonio Gibson and, um, and Joe Mixon. So I liked him better than Joe Mixon. The reason I did was because, look, I know he was terrible his rookie season, but he also got a lot of usage when he was before they signed Le'Veon Bell. And a lot of crazy things happened to Clyde Edwards-Elair last year. First of all, I've mentioned the COVID-shortened rookie season. Obviously, they didn't use him a lot in the past game, which he thrived at at LSU because I think that there wasn't a lot of time to get that established. However, let's let's go kind of go through his season, like what really happened. First, he was he wasn't that bad in the first six games, like pre. Le'Veon Bell. He was RB 18 pace. It was 15.86 points per game. He seemed like a bus kid. He did a first round billing, including by me, but he was actually on pace for the fourth most yards from scrimmage. The reason in the league and those first six games, he was also on pace for the fourth most touches out of running back in the league. The reason that his fantasy totals were so poor and his RB 18 pace was because he only scored one touchdown in the first six games and not for lack of trying. First, the Chiefs in week one gave him like a whopping six carries inside the five-yard line, and he couldn't convert on any of them. Second, after that, there were there were just more missed opportunities. He had a 30-yard catch called back by penalty in week two, and Calais Campbell also tipped a screen pass against Baltimore week two or three where uh, Clyde Edwards-Elair was set up for at least a 20 or 30-yard gainer with blockers in front, but Calais Campbell barely tipped the screen pass, so that prevented points there. He had a receiving touchdown called back by a legal pick play in week five. He also had a rushing touchdown negated by penalty in week six. He dropped a short touchdown in week seven. Then all of that happened before Le'Veon Bell got there. So you, I just told you about his RB18 pace ranking. Imagine what it could have been if some of those plays would have broken his way. He would have been considered like a top five running back in that span. Now, it doesn't mean that the Chiefs maybe wouldn't have went out and signed Le'Veon Bell and ruined his season, but nevertheless, it just shows the opportunity that Clyde Edwards-Lair would have without like Le'Veon Bell before the Chiefs also just kind of abandoned, abandoned the run. So this is a Chiefs offense where it's led by Andy Reid. We know his running back history. These are all the things that made Clyde Edwards-Elair a first-round fantasy pick last season. And one thing that I love doing is drafting players where not a lot has changed from the last season, but they had a much, much higher ADP the year before. Clyde Edwards-Elair was a first-round pick last year. His ADP was like seventh overall or eighth overall or something crazy like that. The hype, you know, got to everybody, including me. I think I had him like eighth overall or something, but he was eighth overall. Now he's going like in round three and nothing's really changed. Like Le'Veon Bell wasn't there before. He's not there now. All we've really seen is, you know, not a great season from Clyde Edwards-Elair. That's fine, but he was also a rookie. The same things that put him in round one last year in terms of his outlook still exist. Number one, Andy Reid, successful his- track record, a history of running back ones in fantasy football. Brian Westbrook, LaShawn McCoy, Jamal Charles. LaShawn McCoy had 155 carries, 637 yards, and four touchdowns on 4.1 yards per carry under Andy Reid. Similar numbers to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and we know what happened to LaShawn McCoy in year two and beyond. Furthermore, furthermore, this offense is led by Patrick Mahomes, so scoring opportunities. Maybe they don't trust Clyde Edwards-Hilaire near the goal line, but maybe they do. He has double-digit scoring potential 
in the best offensive league, led by Patrick Mahomes, this Chiefs offense, Andy Reid. I mean, all of these things still exist. The Chiefs offensive line, probably going to be better than last season by a hair. And moreover, James Palmer reported that Kansas City is emphasizing short to intermediate passes to running backs and tight ends, noting that Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes have agreed this offseason that they need to make more plays when Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey are covered. I also think that there's a chance that, you know, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey were healthy for the entire season last year. If one of them, if injury or health regression were to hit and one of them were to go down, tight as Edwards Elay would be an even bigger part of the offense. He does catch passes. So I don't know. I think there's a lot to like about Clyde Edwards Elay in this situation, in this offense. And I don't think, you may think that Clyde Edwards Elay is not that good at football or as an NFL running back. That's fine. But I'm arguing that he doesn't have to be that good. All he has to be is decent enough to get the opportunities, and he will pay off as being a lead back in this offense just based on Andy Reid's playing calling, just based on the Chiefs offense, Pat Mahomes, the like, the defensive attention that are shown to Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, all of that. I just think he's a major breakout candidate this season, but of course, with the caveat that he's healthy and it looks like he's not going to be healthy to start the season. So great start for this call right here. Um, I already have drafted Clyde Edwards-Elair in one league, so I'm pretty in the second round, so I'm pretty butthurt about that. But, you know, it's the tough game of fantasy football. When you draft early, you take risks that injury is going to happen, but you also get to take advantage of uh, a market that hasn't really uh, sharpened or ADPs that aren't really uh, sharp yet um, because they're late to the, I guess the public's just kind of late to realizing what's really going on. Anyway, moving on to a little quarterback section in my draft guide, and that is Patrick Mahomes and Kyler Murray. Now, look, I get it. Maybe you don't want to draft a quarterback in round three, but if you actually follow this guide, you're not really taking a quarterback until Terry McLaurin is off the board, till CeeDee Lamb is off the board. It's looking like it might be late round three. And if you don't want to take a quarterback here, that's fine. Before I even get into the numbers here on these guys, let me just acknowledge that I do agree that it's probably suboptimal in terms of fantasy value to draft a quarterback in a one quarterback league in round three. I think that that's really high. I think as experts advise you not to do it for a reason. The, the replaceability at quarterback, if you're in a one-quarterback league, is just so um, easy to do, so e- so much easier to get a quarterback later who's going to put up similar production, or you can stream matchups. There's a number of different things that you can do. I mean, that's one of the reasons that they're, all leagues should be super flex leagues, but I'm not going to go there right now. The reason that I have quarterbacks higher probably than experts on their board is that late round three is where I have Mahomes going is because... I think that there's a certain level of kind of bust proof or safety to quarterbacks, to these elite quarterbacks like Mahomes and Kyler Murray, to where like Patrick Mahomes, he kind of has like a, like he kind of reminds me of like Peyton Manning. You know, you're going to have a good season from Patrick Mahomes. Like it's just going to happen. Okay. He's the best player in the NFL. And, you know, he has a little bit of a rushing floor. He plays in an Andy Reid offense, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey. I mean, he's just, he's just awesome. So, and you also know he's going to be fun to have on your roster on Sundays. And that's, there's a little bit of something to that too. And because quarterbacks score the most points in fantasy football, and because of the majority of playoff teams in your fantasy league have good quarterbacks, like if you go back and look at all of your playoffs, your fantasy playoffs, it is very likely that teams in the playoffs had a good quarter, had good quarterback play, good fantasy quarterback play. Because that is true, they score the most points. 
I think the value of having strong quarterback play is underrated. Now, that is different than saying drafting quarterbacks high is underrated. That's not the same thing. I think that having strong quarterback play for your fantasy team is underrated. I think it has a bigger impact on your fantasy success in season-long leagues than people think. However, you get, like I've mentioned, you have to understand the opportunity cost when taking a quarterback this high. Several others in your league may also obtain quality quarterback play in production in much later areas of the draft or even in free agency. So quarterback early isn't for around, isn't for everyone, but if you're somebody who's really comfortable with their team after maybe three rounds and Patrick Mahomes or Kyler Murray's on the board, then I, I say go for it because I think Kyler Murray and, and Patrick Mahomes, even Josh Allen to an extent, give you a certain level of safety, uh, fun, and, and weak winning ability. Like when they throw for five touchdowns, weak winning ability right there. So one thing I do want to say about Mahomes is that I've ranked him at quarterback one, but I'm actually kind of torn on whether I like him or Kyler Murray or even Josh Allen as quarterback one. I mean, you could make a case for all of them. Mahomes last year had a really, really interesting season. He averaged 25 points per game in 15 games. I uh, excluded the playoff games from his uh, CGS sample because he exited in week 18 with the turf toe injury, and he, he played with the turf toe. He was kind of immobile weeks 19 and 20. Uh, that is the, the AFC Championship game in the Super Bowl. Uh, but his 25 points per game was QB2 pace behind um, Kyler Murray and behind Dak Prescott, if you include the five-game sample of Prescott. Um he had two touchdowns dropped in week one, but he also had two interceptions and one fumble loss blown dead by officials, um, two dropped interceptions, sorry, and one fumble loss blown dead by officials in week four. He had a 75-yard touchdown to Tyreek Hill nullified by holding week five. Uh, there was rainfall in week six and a snowy field in week seven. They couldn't throw a lot. Uh, Clyde Rezilier dropped a short touchdown in week seven. He had two touchdowns nullified for his Denver in week th uh, 13 that I talked about with Tyreek Hill. He had two tipped interceptions in week 14, but he was also lucky to escape with only one turnover in week 16 where he had a bunch of dropped interceptions. Um, overall, the reason I say all this is because Patrick Mahomes was kind of better and worse at the same time than you may remember or think last year in terms of his fantasy production. So it kind of cancels out, I guess. But he threw a lot of would-be interceptions. He was pretty reckless with the ball uh, from a game-watching perspective. Um, several turnovers dropped or negated. He also had several touchdowns dropped or negated, though. So I don't know. I just thought that was worth mentioning because I go through all the games. Um, Mahomes, again, I gave the argument for him. He's the best player in the NFL. And I really have no problem with going Patrick Mahomes especially in your home leagues, like, you know, late round three, early round four, if he's on the board. Um, Kyler Murray, same kind of thing. Last year, Kyler Murray, and he was my quarterback one for most of the offseason. I just recently made the switch. I might switch back. It's one of those things where I differ every day. And I even had Josh Allen there for a bit. But Kyler Murray, what I love about Murray is that before his shoulder injury, he was so amazing. Like, his numbers declined after the shoulder injury he sustained in week nine against Miami. In his first nine games, 29.26 points per game, QB1 pace, okay? Not only was it QB1 pace, it was on pace to match 2019 Lamar Jackson, the greatest fantasy season of all time. So you heard that right. Kyler Murray in his first nine games was on pace for one of the greatest fantasy seasons ever for a quarterback. That is being overlooked by the fantasy community. 
the fantasy community is acting like as if he just declined in the second half of the season because, I don't know, defenses figured him out. But it wasn't that. It was an injury. He had a clear shoulder injury, and the difference was shown in the rushing production because he was avoiding contact. He wasn't running. In the first nine games, Kyler Murray, 87 attempts rushing for 604 rushing yards and 10 rushing touchdowns. In terms of rushing production only, it was over 13 rushing points per game. In the final six games after his shoulder injury, only 212 rushing yards compared to 604 I know it's 10 versus 6 games, but still, but only one rushing touchdown in the final six games. In the final six games, he averaged 4.5 rushing points per game, again, compared to 13.37 rushing points per game prior to the injury. There was a nine-point-per-game difference rushing simply because Kyler Murray was not running the football with his injured shoulder. He did not want to put himself in harm's way. So it was a different quarterback. That is huge. So I'm very tempted to rank Kyler Murray as the quarterback one, seeing as his 29 points per game was four points per game higher than Patrick Mahomes' 25 points per game. But knowing that Mahomes was just coming off the 50 touchdown season in 2019, where he took the league by storm and was the league MVP, I think that, oh, sorry, that was 2018, my bad. That was Lamar Jackson in 2019. But anyway, knowing that Mahomes has a 50 touchdown season in him potentially, I don't know. It's, it's just a tough call. I have no problem with taking Kyler Murray first. And honestly, if you're following the draft guide, let's be real here. I'm talking about taking a quarterback in the late third round. But if you're in one of your home drafts, it's most likely that Patrick Mahomes is going to go before the late third round. So you're probably not ending up with Patrick Mahomes on your rosters if you're following this guide anyway. But you could be ending up with Kyler Murray on your team because Murray is ADP as quarterback three. I may have him quarterback one. So I have him neck and neck with quarterback one. So to me, I love the opportunity to draft him in round four. I'm not, you know, I have him as a late third round prospect or late third round grade on Murray if all the players in front of him are gone. But I don't love taking him in round three. I might see if I could just try to get somebody else. And I may even move him down a little on my board um, if I find that a lot of my people are drafting Kyler Murray and I'm not liking their teams if a lot of my listeners, that is. But I'm loving the opportunity in round four. I mean, if, if Kyler Murray's there in round four, I just think if he has league-winning upside that we actually saw through nine games last year. Now I'm moving on to uh, 30 and 31. That's Chris Carson, RB15. So his ADP is RB17, and I have him right about a consensus is, is ADP is 30 overall. So you may or may not end up with Carson on your team. What I like about Carson, it's similar to Kyler Murray, He was awesome before he got hurt last season. In 11 games that he played, he had 16.5 points per game. That alone was RB15 pace, and I have him at RB15. But in his first five games before his foot injury, 19.98 points a game. That's RB7 pace. So then he would be a really perceived value. After returning from the foot injury in the final six games, excluding week 17, but including the playoff game, excluding week 17 because the Seahawks had nothing to play for and they pulled Chris Carson in the second half for Alex Collins, but excluding week 17, including week, uh, including the playoff game, he only averaged 13.16 points a game. That was RB25 pace. So clearly the foot was just uh, probably not right for Chris Carson. 
The Seahawks had an interesting offseason. I mentioned about Pete Carroll's obsession with establishing the run. I think that bodes well for Carson, but I do think that he does carry risk that he's going to be like the 1A back and a running back by committee. They did show a commitment to Carson by signing him for two years, but they also, before signing Chris Carson, they looked, they reportedly made a strong bid for Lennon Fournette and. They've talked up Rashad Penny being one of the top rushing duos in the league, and they've also talked up Alex Collins. So there's a chance that this is a running back by committee, but but I do think Carson will lead the committee. Carson does catch passes. He's an underrated pass catcher, and I think that he's going to get goal line here. So as long as his fumbling woes don't uh, pop up again, I think Carson's probably a little underrated in terms of a real-life talent. And I think that this Seahawks team may be pretty con- more conservative than the public thinks uh, if Pete Carroll has his way. So, yeah, I like Chris Carson, but just know that he does come with – he's not for the faint of heart because he does come with substantial risk. He's an extreme injury risk, and he also carries risk that he's in a running back by committee. But he also carries extreme upside because if he plays like he played before he got hurt last year when he was RB7 pace, you're going to get a huge bargain at 30 overall, especially when this is kind of usually the RB dead zone where it's kind of a drop-off before round three. And if you can snag Carson in like round four and he ends up staying healthy and being the lead back in Seattle, that would be really nice. So another running back that may end up that has a risk of being a committee, but I don't think he will be. But there's there's definitely a risk that they will limit his workload is Daryl Henderson, and I have him and Carson just kind of like in the same little tier right there. I don't really care who you take out of those, both of them. I really really don't know who I would choose. Um, I would probably mix my exposure up. Look, Daryl Henderson's only this high because Cam Akers got hurt. Cam Akers' ADP was the mid second round, despite the presence of Daryl Henderson who I thought was going to get some pass-catching opportunities here because Daryl Henderson's no slouch. He was Pro Football Focus's number rated back when he sustained a midseason ankle injury in 2020. He was putting up fantasy production. I know it was in a running back by committee. I realize Malcolm Brown was an annoyance, but Malcolm Brown's gone, and now Cam Akers is gone. So the backup running backs for the Rams, Xavier Jones and Jake Funk, if you've never heard of them, you can join the club with about 99% of the people you're going to draft with because these are nobodies, okay? So Daryl Henderson's the only running back there. Now, Sean McVay has already said that he's, you know, they're not going to bring a running back in right now, which is good. So they're going to rely on Henderson, but he's already said that they're going to, you know, because of his injury history, they're going to kind of limit his touches, not give him like a full bell cow load. But what I love about Henderson is, first of all, the Rams like running historically with Sean McVay. They like running near the goal line or inside the red zone. Maybe that was just a prevent Jared, a high Jared Goff thing, but we'll see. But what I really like about Darren Henderson is he catches a lot of passes, right? I mean, that's something that is going to help him in PPR leagues big time. So yeah, I think that Henderson will be kind of an every down back for the Rams, but I also think they're going to limit his touches. So you're only going to see him get like maybe 15 touches a game. And if that's, you know, four receptions, then he's going to be really valuable. Uh, Moving on to Josh Allen, which I have at 32. Again, the quarterbacks are probably going to go a little higher and I might have to not notch the quarterbacks a little lower because I don't really want my listeners aggressively targeting quarterbacks or taking them in round three, even though I have third round grades on them. So I might have to bump them down a little to round four. That's kind of, as I'm talking it through, that's kind of where I feel more comfortable with it, especially because there's so many good quarterback options later, which we'll get to in the next podcast episode. But Josh Allen, 
you know, what I really like about Josh Allen is obviously his rushing floor is substantial. It's very unlikely he's going to bust even if he regresses as a thrower. Um, but Josh Allen, like think about the last couple of years with Josh Allen from a fantasy perspective. In 2018, Josh Allen was the QB1 down the stretch, like the final seven games of 2018. Yeah, we're going back that far. He was QB1 overall. Then in 2019, Josh Allen's still inaccurate, but because of the rushing, QB6 overall finish. Okay, not points per game, but finish. So two good seasons right there. And then last season, he finishes the overall quarterback one. So three, two and a half great seasons in a row for Josh Allen. Obviously, I mentioned his rushing floor. He scores like eight or nine touchdowns on the ground per year. He plays in like an air raid offense. Like they love, the Bills love to spread it out. 95% of their pass attempts had at least three wide receivers on the field. That's by far the highest percentage in the NFL. Buffalo ranked third in neutral pass rate. Uh, Josh Allen was 24.48 points per game in 19 games last season, including playoffs. That was QB four pace behind Dak Prescott behind in his only five games behind Kyler Murray behind, uh, Pat Mahomes, but barely behind them. And, you know, he had stretches where he played like an MVP. So I like Josh Allen a lot. There were, there was a time this offseason where I had him as QB one overall, but again, I think I'd probably rather him in round four than round, uh, Three. So my last couple players in round one, I have three more here. First, Julio Jones. Julio, get the stretch. Now, Julio Jones, there's not a lot to say about Julio Jones, honestly. I know this podcast has gone extremely long, of course, but there really isn't a lot to say about Julio Jones. Last year, he's averaged 19 point per game in seven full games. That's excluding week four and 11 early exits. That was actually wide receiver six pace. Right now he's going as wide receiver 17 and his ADP is wide receiver 12. So I want to be above market on Julio Jones. I want drafters in position to draft Julio Jones and I'm probably going to put him above these quarterbacks in my first edit following this podcast. But wide receiver six pace in his seven games. A lot of people think Julio Jones wasn't that great last year. When he played a full game, he was that great. Wide receiver six pace. Again, um, he also was not 100% going into last season with the hamstring injury. And he played really well in seven full games, like I've mentioned. So uh, still an elite talent. And he, I think he's just being underdrafted. He's still an elite talent. I know he's over the hill. I know he might be a bigger injury risk on the wrong side of 30. Um, I know he has A.J. Brown to compete with targets. I know that it's going to be a run-first offense in Tennessee. However, I don't think, I mean, this is still Julio Jones. I think we got to look at it just logically. That's why I'm saying there's not a lot to say about Julio Jones. He is amazing at football, and I think that he's going too low. Why does he for 17 for Julio Jones? That just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right at all, especially when you consider that he was wide receiver six pace on what many considered a really, really down year for Julio Jones. So he may not have everything that he did, but and he may be going to a run first team, but you could also make the argument that like he's getting a quarterback upgrade, right? Like going from Matt Ryan to Ryan Tanhill, maybe that will cancel out some of the uh, volume concerns that Julio, the volume reduction that Julio Jones will experience. So I think that Julio Jones is an elite talent that's being underdrafted and he should be closer to A.J. Brown in ADP than he is. Like if I told you that A.J. Brown and Julio Jones are on the same team, is it really a guarantee that A.J. Brown is going to outproduce Julio Jones? Like if they both play a full season? No, 
it's definitely not a guarantee. It's not even close to a guarantee. It's closer to 50-50. Like if they both play 16 games, sorry, 17 games this year, like I don't know who would have more yards, catches. I probably, A.J. Brown would probably have more touchdowns, but I don't know who would have more yards, catches, targets, Julio Jones or A.J. Brown. They're both awesome. They're both incredible. So why is A.J. Brown a surefire second-round pick in ADP, 23 overall, Julio Jones, ADP 42. I don't think that's too much of a gap. Wide receiver 17 versus wide receiver 8. Too much of a gap. I don't like it. I've been in position to draft Julio Jones in quite a few teams. I have him on two already. Uh, Moving on to George Kittle, I also have him on two teams. Kittle is also... I don't know. I have him as con- right around his ADP at 34 overall. I was much higher on Kittle, but now I'm a little concerned about the volume. Let's get one thing straight first. Kittle was awesome in points per game last season. And if you know, if you followed my guide last year, you know that Kittle was the poster boy. I was all about George Kittle last year, and he was a huge disappointment because he got hurt. And it burned me, and it burned y'all. And I apologize for that. However... If you had Julio Jones, your, I mean, if you had George Kittle on your team, you may have noticed that when he actually played and wasn't hurt, he was quite good. 18.31 points per game in the six games that he, six full games that uh, George Kittle played. That is tight end two pace. It was ahead of Darren Waller, behind Travis Kelsey. So that's excluding week one, which is the third quarter exit, and excluding week eight, which is the early fourth quarter exit where Nick Mullins threw 200 yards with a garbage time in the fourth quarter that you wish Julio, I mean, that George Kittle would have had. His six full, full games, he scored 40 points versus Philadelphia in the games he just dominated, one of the most dominating games for a tight end all season. And then the next game, Jimmy Garoppolo was immobile, hurt, and benched against Miami in a blowout loss. He played two games with C.J. Bedard and 2.5 games with Jimmy Garoppolo, one game with Nick Mullins. So a quarterback rotation there, like three different quarterbacks in his six full games, he's still 18 points a game. Now, granted, Debo Samuel only played two of those six games. Ayuk only played one of those six games. Oh, no, excuse me. I read that wrong. Debo Samuel did not play two of those six games. So Debo Samuel played four of those six games. Ayuk played five of those six games. So that argument can't really be used. So Kittle was extremely productive in his healthy games. The issue is that he is, this is not the first time he's been hurt. He's quite the injury risk. Last two years, he's dealt with injury. That was one of the reasons I was buying low last year. It's because I thought positive or healthy regression would hit him. Like he'd be healthier. But no, that was not the case. It was even worse. So anyway, he averaged more points per game last year than Waller in his six healthy games, despite playing with three different quarterbacks. And he's going to have probably two different quarterbacks this year if Garoppolo starts and then he goes to Lance. My one concern is that the Niners is volume. The Niners are likely going to want to run the ball like 500 times this season. They've already mentioned Raheem Mostert's healthy now. They drafted Trey Sermon, Debo Samuel, healthier now. Brandon Ayuk, healthy. So it's just tough. Like, how many pieces of the pie are there when you have Trey Lance's rushing that will also eat into George Kittle's production, especially, you know, potentially in the red zone? So, look, I love George Kittle, and I think he's an elite talent. I think he's one of the best players in the NFL, and that's why I think he should be being picked in round three. I also advocate strongly on going tight end early. I think I'm going to move George Kittle and Julio Jones above the quarterback's like immediately when I sign off this podcast. So I'll actually have George Kittle two spots ahead of ADP. But I will say that there are concerns about the volume. But, you know, you just never know. Debo could get hurt again. IU could get hurt. And then all of a sudden, Kittle's like, you know, a top two tight end. So I like the fact that he's going 
several spots lower than Waller. So you are getting somewhat of a discount on a player who did outscore Waller this last year, but I definitely think he's more of a risk than Waller. Waller is very safe. Kittle is more of a risk, not just because of the volume, because Waller's going to have more volume playing with the Raiders because they stink and their defense stinks and Carr locks onto them. They have a better throwing quarterback, arguably, than Garoppolo and Lance. But also, it's a Waller's a less of an injury risk. So Kittle carries more risk, but I think the upside is similar to Darren Waller, and you're getting them later, so a few picks later. I already have Kittle on two of my teams, Waller on one. Um, and let's move to the last player that I'll talk about tonight. That is Mike Evans. He, I have him a third-round grade on Mike Evans, and that is because I know a lot A lot of people are going to kind of maybe disagree with that. It's a little higher than consensus. It is receiver 13, which is where Evans is going, but it's a few spots higher than ADP, where his ADP is kind of in the fourth round. A lot of people are like, oh, well, why do you – there's too many mouths to feed in Tampa Bay. They got Antonio Brown. They got Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski, O.J. Howard's coming back. They signed Gio Bernard. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of mouths to feed for Tom Brady. I get it. But it's not like Brady can't support multiple pass catchers. Of course he can. He's done it his entire career. His entire career, that's all he's done is support multiple pass catchers. Here's the thing about Mike Evans. He is another injury discount because last year he went into the season, if you recall, not healthy. And he played through a nagging hamstring injury at various times, and even during various games last season where he wasn't fully healthy. And he consistently produces every single year. And I'll get to that in a second. But for those of you concerned, like, oh, what about splitting with Chris Godwin and Antonio Brown? Like, I'm really worried about that. Well, in the final nine games where where Evans and AB and Godwin all played, okay, final full games, full nine games with AB, Godwin, and Evans. So that's excluding week 17 because Evans had a second quarter exit. It's excluding week 19 because A.B. had a third quarter exit and excluding week 20 because A.B. did not play. But I wanted to sample all the games where all of them were fully active and played the full game. And there was the final nine games that I just mentioned. Mike Evans, 17.07 points per game, wide receiver, 15 pace. So despite the presence of A.B. and Godwin playing full games with Evans, Evans was wide receiver, 15 pace. And tomorrow I'm going to get into what the pace, what Chris Godwin and Antonio Brown did in that, in that same split, in that same stretch, and it is not as pretty. It's not nearly as pretty. So Mike Evans is the top target there. He's the best deep threat on the Bucks. He's the best red zone threat for Tom Brady. And with another, the other reason that I have a third-round grade on Mike Evans is because every single year, he produces seven straight seasons with 1,000 receiving yards. He's the only receiver ever in the history of the NFL to do that. Or maybe he's tied with that. But either way, he tied or broke that record last year. And I also think we're getting a nice discount here too because Mike Evans was a mid-second round pick last season in a very, very similar situation. And I also just love that Brady's his quarterback. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of level of safety with Mike Evans knowing that Tom Brady is his quarterback. All right, that'll conclude today's episode, the longest podcast in the history known to man. Next episode, I'm going to continue on with the mid-rounds and of the fantasy law guide of my draft board, and then I'm going to talk about the late rounds, what I would be doing in the late rounds, my strategy there, and then on the podcast after that, I will be talking about the players that are not on my draft board, the players that I'm avoiding at cost, because the cost is too high, their, their ADP is too high, 
So they're just not really, I'm not really in position to be, even be close to drafting them. So I'm going to discuss why that is, why they're too highly priced for my liking. So if you're wondering why your favorite player or why is player X isn't on my draft board, why they aren't addressed in the fantasy law guy, I'm going to explain why I'm going to also add that in there after that specific podcast. So stay tuned for all of that. If you enjoyed today's show, please do me a solid hit the subscribe button, give a positive rating or review. I would really appreciate that. I also appreciate your feedback. Let me know what you hate about my rankings. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you're finding in drafts to help me out. Uh, Please. I mean, I would love to hear what your feedback, positive and negative. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Good luck in your drafts.